Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. It's Friday, which is when we hear from StoryCorps. Now, over the years, hundreds of people have led us into their lives through the StoryCorps segments here on NPR News, but none more so than Lynn Weaver, who has appeared on our air four different times. We're sorry to report that Lynn Weaver has died, died over the weekend at the age of 69. We first heard from him in 2007 when he sat down to recall his father, Ted Weaver, a janitor and chauffeur in Knoxville, Tennessee. Lynn Weaver remembered a day when he was a kid struggling through high school algebra. So my father said, what's the problem? And he said, well, let me look at it. I said, Dad, they didn't even have algebra in your day. <laughs> and I went to sleep. And around 4 o'clock that morning, he said, hey, come on, son, get up. He set me at the kitchen table, and he taught me algebra. What he had done is sit up all night and read the algebra book. And then he explained the problems to me so I could understand them. <laughs> and to this day... I live my life trying to be half the man my father was. Lynn Weaver went on to become a surgeon and chief of surgery at Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta. He came to StoryCorps multiple times over the years to pay tribute to his father and recall his own childhood, including integrating his high school in 1964 and playing for their football team. Uh, There were always racial comments. I remember we played an all-white school. The game was maybe only in the second quarter. My brother tackled their tight end and broke his collarbone. And when they had to take him off the field with his arm in a sling, that's when the crowd really got ugly. We were on the visitor's sideline and they were coming across the field. So we backed up against the fence. I remember the coach saying, keep your helmet on. So I was pretty afraid. And then a hand reaches through the fence and grabs my shoulder pads I look around, 
and it's my father. And I turned to my brother. I said, it's okay. Dad's here. The state police came and escorted us to the buses. The crowd is still chanting and throwing things at the bus. And as the bus drives off, I look back and I see my father standing there and all these angry white people. And I said to my brother, how's daddy going to get out of here? They might kill him. We get to the high school and the most incredible feeling I think I've ever had was when my father walked through the door of the locker room and said, are you ready to go? As if nothing had happened. And I wanted to tell him, dad, don't come to any more games. But selfishly, I couldn't. I needed him there for me to feel safe. Normally, when you're with a team, you feel like everybody's going to stand together. And I never got that feeling that the team would stand with me if things got bad. I think a number of the white students who were there with me would say, now, if I could have did something different, I would have said something. But that's what evil depends on. Good people to be quiet. College don't mean shit. Y'all niggas. And you gonna be niggas forever. Just like us. Niggas. Throughout New York, some places are still named with racial slurs and other offensive language. WXXI's Veronica Volk asks, how does that impact the people who live there? Bruce Farrington is the historian for the village of Sodus Point. He stands on a stretch of beach on the south shore of Lake Ontario, looking over to a piece of land that juts out into the water. It's called Freedom Hill. There was a large group of people in this area that were strongly against slavery, and they risked six months in prison and a $1,000 fine to help the slaves in taking them across to Canada where freedom was. Freedom Hill, it is widely believed, was a final stop on the Underground Railroad. As a betting person, I would believe that the people would be up there on the hill looking for that, for that schooner coming their way. But this place wasn't always called Freedom Hill. It used to be referred to with the N-word. Farrington suspects the place was likely labeled with the racial slur by bounty hunters chasing fugitive slaves in the North before the Civil War. And the name stuck until in 1963, the federal government ordered that the offensive term be replaced with Negro in all geographic names. While most locals call it Freedom Hill, this place and 24 other places across the state still officially contain the word Negro. To the west, a small strip of land jutting into Port Bay is still referred to on Google Maps as Negro Head Point. Fred and Marilyn Nyer live there. I visited them on a Saturday afternoon while they sat on their back deck with children and grandchildren. Marilyn says she believes the name came from the Underground Railroad as well. I'm almost positive they would go to Canada from here. An alternate theory, put forth by town historian Rosa Fox, is that it was named that because a black family lived on the point in the 1800s. She says there's plausibility to both stories. Regardless of its origins, Fred Nyer didn't agree with changing the name. Personally, I think it's it's a part of our history, though, and I don't think we should lose our history just to be politically correct. I mean, I think we should understand it and know it, but I don't think we should change the map because it's not politically correct at this point in time. Peter Evans, the Wayne County historian, agrees. This this wholesale renaming, 
tear down everything that had to do with representations of the South, of slavery, tear it all down, get rid of it. And, you know, I'm not saying it was good, but it's what it was. And should we ignore that? Um, as an African-American, I have a diff- interesting perspective. Eric McNair is the vice president of Wayne Action for Racial Equality. We can acknowledge history. We can acknowledge the things that have occurred. But that doesn't mean that, that those things don't require change. McNair says he's not surprised by those who say the name shouldn't change. Wayne County's population is 94 percent white. Your personal experience affects whether or not something is offensive to you. McNair says he's experienced a lot of prejudice in the county as well, and that having places named after slurs may perpetuate that prejudice. He says in his capacity at Ware, he's working to change not just the names of these places, but the culture. And I think that as African-Americans and an African-American community is just now taking a larger stand and putting boundaries on these things and saying, hey, these things can't happen. We can't call these places these names anymore. We can't do that anymore. It's not impossible to change a name, though it is laborious. In Buffalo, it took two years to rename Unity Island, originally called Squaw Island. Veronica Volk, WXXI News. And all the while, I kept thinking about that great old Whitman poem when I heard the learned astronomer. Pathetically enough, I could. All right, well. No, no, come on. Come on. (laughs) When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and the diagrams to add, divide, and measure them, when I, sitting heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room. How soon, unaccountable, I became tired and sick. Till rising and gliding out, I wandered off by myself in the mystical, moist night air. And from time to time, looked up in a perfect silence at the stars. Yes, I am a nerd. (laughs) Bravo. Thank you. It's Morning Edition on WNYC. I'm Richard Hake. This week marks the 200th birthday of poet Walt Whitman. Events all over the city are commemorating the legendary poet, including several at the Brooklyn Public Library. Whitman, of course, lived and worked in Brooklyn for many years. Earlier this month, the library hosted a critical debate about Whitman's most celebrated work, Leaves of Grass, examining the writing through a racially diverse lens. Poet Harmony Holiday was on that panel, and WNYC's cultural critic Rebecca Carroll spoke with her about the experience, and she joins us now. Hi, Rebecca. Hey, Richard. So first, tell us more about Harmony Holiday. Why was she in particular chosen for this panel? 
So Harmony Holiday is a writer, an archivist, and performance artist who has published four critically acclaimed collections of poetry, and she's currently at work on a biography of Abby Lincoln, as well as an epic about reparations and the black body. She, I thought, was a really interesting choice for this conversation about Whitman because she's very musical. Her mm-hmm. father is American R&B singer-songwriter Jimmy Holiday, oh. and she has a very keen command of archival sound and audio and language. And Whitman, of course, did a lot with language, much of what was considered quite unprecedented, groundbreaking, and ahead of its time. So her take as a black woman poet on this canonized white male poet is really vivid. So what did she have to say about Whitman's relationship to race? So she discovered Whitman in high school as required reading, as many of us did. Mm -hmm. But she said she didn't really feel anything about him in regard to race until she was in college and read Leaves of Grass. And she had actually tweeted about that recently about how she wondered what it would have felt like for Malcolm X if he had had the luxury to just lay in the grass reading Shakespeare. I think about that a lot because I think a lot of black revolutionaries loved language and that was where it was come to. I mean, even James Baldwin, I was just watching The Price of the Ticket last night and he was talking about not thinking of himself as a revolutionary he wants to be a writer, but he's not just going to sit around in some tower and cultivate his talents. Those were his words. And that's sort of like what Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and people like that sacrifice when they go and use their speaking and language talents to scream because yeah. they have no choice. We don't know what poets we would have had. And right. coming from a background where my dad was a sharecropper and he didn't get taught to read or write and had to have friends and wives transcribe his music for him. I know what it means to want to be a poet or a writer and not have that tool given to you. So it sounds like there are a few things at play here. There's the era that Whitman was writing in and the luxury he had that black poets did not. And then Whitman's own feelings about race. Yeah, specifically about black people. I mean, he was racist Mm -hmm. by the standards of the 1800s and of the 2000s. And I was really curious to know how Holiday discussed that on on the Brooklyn Public Library panel and also the broader repercussions of identifying this in Whitman's work. We've all heard that whole, well, that was another time argument. But how do you reconcile with racism of a canonized poet? Yeah. Is there a new way to engage with racism that we have yet to discover? I think there's a new level of honesty. I think we can look at his work with that in our minds instead of what we were taught in the past as readers. If you're brought into academia, you're told to look at a work just for what it is on the page and I don't think that that's fair anymore to readers, you know, the the diversity of readers we have and the people who are being forced to read him. There was a student at Northwestern who was going to get, I think, a PhD, and he got failed in a class because he didn't want to recite Whitman Mm -hmm. because he had found Mm -hmm. some research about his racism and him calling black people baboons, literally. So it's like we're allowed to read his poems and know that and think about that while we're reading them instead of just read his poems and think about the great ahead of his time. I think tropes like someone being ahead of their time and think like that's problematic because he was of his time. Right. He just was hiding that stuff. But there are scores of well-known poets and writers who have been influenced by Whitman, some such as black writer June Jordan, who used her own work to be in critical conversation with his work. Uh, did you talk with Holiday about that? I did, and specifically Jordan's essay, For the Sake of People's Poetry, Walt Whitman and the Rest of Us, in which she explores Whitman's queer outsider identity. I feel like she was trying to make a case 
for teaching in a different way, like a new pedagogy of poetry. And she was using him because there were no better examples. But I don't think that was the best example. And some of the lines she quoted, like she quoted this section of one of his poems where he talks about helping a slave auctioneer Mm -hmm. and how he doesn't know the worth of the body as him being really... The word abolitionist came up right on Sunday. I'm like, he's not... That's not an abolitionist. He's talking about helping. So it's like reading things with a hope, Mm. Uh, you know, like, but that's not really what he's saying. He was still referring to the black body as an it, and he was still helping a slave auctioneer sell that body. And, of course, now we're living in what's called cancellation culture. Are are we canceling Walt Whitman? I mean, I probably would, uh, Mm. but Holiday had a very sound answer to that. This is America. (laughs) (laughs) No one's letting go of the precious... Walt Whitman and all the ideological, egoic energies that he holds for so many. He's not going anywhere. So I think the point is to try to read him as a fixture. And it's almost like the opposite of cancellation culture. It needs to be explored. Since he is basically a statue in this culture, we have to be able to permeate some of that stone and chip away at the bull, basically. And Rebecca, you mentioned to me that Holiday is working on a project about reparations and the black body. Is is there a connection between that project and her feelings about Whitman and race? I think so, yeah. I asked her what she thought white America owes the black body and what Walt Whitman might owe the black poet. And here's what she said. If we can imagine past Walt Whitman, what would a black Walt Whitman at that time have sounded like? I feel like that's what we owe ourselves when we're thinking about his bicentennial. Let's also think about all those ghosts, you know, and tools to mine those ideas through listening back to thinking about spirituals and where our poetry really was, even with like tap dancing and worked songs and things like that. And really, I guess, piecing, that's why I love the archive so much, like piecing together what our sound might have been if it hadn't been taken away in written language, not just verbally in song, you know. Walt Whitman turns 200 on May 31st. Harmony Holiday is the author of four collections of poetry, including Go Find Your Father of Famous Blues. WMYC's cultural critic, Rebecca Carroll, thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. are pregnant and you smoke some pot to relieve morning sickness, is that harmful for your baby? That's what researchers at the University of Washington are trying to find out. Dr. Natalia Kleinhans is leading a new study at the UW School of Medicine. She told me about what they're trying to learn and who's taking part in this research. This study is targeting a very specific group of women who are are pregnant are experiencing morning sickness and have decided to use cannabis to treat their morning sickness. They've decided on their own to do this. Absolutely. So when we see them, they're usually going to be towards the end of their first trimester. So they've been using cannabis already um, before they sign up to see us. And what are you hoping to find out? Um, So what we're trying to do with this study is to gather um, scientific data on the risks of using cannabis during pregnancy to control morning sickness. So right now, if you're a woman and you have morning sickness and you go talk to your doctor, 
and ask, you know, is this pharmaceutical Zofran safer for my baby than cannabis? There's just no data available right now to answer that question. You know, so ultimately what we want is to um, help women make better informed choices. So, doctor, how will the study work? Um, so we'll enroll women in the study. We ask them questions to make sure they qualify. We will give them a drug test to make sure that they're not using um, tobacco, alcohol, or other drugs. And then we're going to ask them throughout their second and third trimester to report in a weekly diary their marijuana use, vitamins, exercise, morning sickness. We're going to give them two um, drug tests throughout that time just to continue to verify that they're not using other substances. Once the baby is born, we'll get some information on birth outcomes, such as weight, head circumference, APCAR score, those types of things. And then six months later, we'll have the baby and the mom come back in. And that's when we'll do the extensive developmental evaluation where we're looking at cognition, social skills, motor development, and then doing our sophisticated brain imaging measures to look at brain development. Now, all that information is to come, but what do we know right now about how marijuana can affect the brain development in infants? So it's actually very difficult to understand exactly what the effect of marijuana has on brain development or on infant outcomes. The reason is that previous research included women who were using marijuana, but who were also using tobacco and alcohol. And these substances we know are associated with severe birth defects and adverse outcomes. So... Some studies have shown there are negative effects with marijuana, but these effects actually go away once you control for other environmental factors or tobacco and alcohol. The most consistent one that has been reported is low birth weight. So on the one hand, it could be that there really aren't significant adverse outcomes associated with marijuana use, but it could be that there are more subtle outcomes that we just don't see when you lump it in there with marijuana and alcohol use. Doctor, do you see any ethical concerns uh, when it comes to doing this kind of research? I think people are very concerned about testing out medications, drugs on pregnant women. However, the women in our study have decided on their own to use marijuana. They're using it regardless of being in this study or not. In that case, this is an observational study. We're not telling women how much marijuana to use. We're not telling them what to use. And if they stop using marijuana, they're still part of our study. An observational study like ours isn't the best design for answering a scientific question, but we do it this way because this is the ethical way to do it. Dr. Natalia Kleinhans is Associate Professor of Radiology at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Thank you for the time. Thank you. Dr. Kleinhans is aiming to recruit 70 women in total. Half will be in the test group and the other half in a control group. Funding for the research comes from the U.S. National Institute of Drug Abuse. The man knot, race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. In 1991, the late director John Singleton's Boys in the Hood came out in theaters. Coverage of Rodney King being beaten by Los Angeles cops was playing practically on a loop on television screens. And this song by a Houston rap group called The Ghetto Boys brought never-before-heard vulnerability to the subgenre known as gangster rap. My mom is playing tricks on me. 
Today is part of our American Anthem series. NPR Music's Rodney Carmichael is here to talk about how mind-playing tricks became an anthem and laid the groundwork for generations of young black men to express their anxiety. Hi, Rodney. Hey, Noel. What's going on? Tell us about this song and, and what it meant. Noel, mind-playing tricks on me was practically my theme song when it came out. And it wasn't just me. In the fall of 1991, you could hear this song bumping out of just about every car with speakers in the trunk. It really put a voice to the angst and paranoia that defined what it meant to be a young black man in America at the time. I sit alone in my four-cornered room staring at candles. Who got me? Real radio dude? I mean, there's already a a post-traumatic stress that comes along with being black in this country. It's almost part of your inheritance, right? And in the 80s and the 90s, remember, things got even deeper. The crack era, the war on drugs, over-policing and mass incarceration. I mean, this was the era when it wasn't at all unusual to hear young black men referred to as an endangered species. And the worst of it is, we were being told that we were the ones that we should fear the most. Now, just imagine how that plays with your psyche. Headline, I can't sleep. I toss and turn. Candlesticks in the dark. Visions of bodies being burned. Four walls closing in, getting bigger. I'm paranoid, sleeping with my finger on the trigger. Now, the Ghetto Boys, Noel, they were already legendary in the South. But this song right here, it made them huge everywhere. It, and it gave Scarface, the member who wrote the majority of the song, more Southern Gothic street cred than Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, he was born Brad Jordan, but he took on the name of one of the most celebrated figures in rap, Scarface the Kingpin from the classic Al Pacino movie. So he's written this song about paranoia, about angst, about worry. How much of that was really part of his life? Well, it was a combination of his own imagination, but also his own lived experience. He wrote three of the four verses in the song, with group members Willie D and Bushwick Bill carrying the rest of the load. But it's actually Scarface's grandmother who deserves credit for the song's title. And she talked about it several years ago with MTV. I think I was just kind of mumbling to myself or my lips was working or something. And he said, Mama, he said, what are you talking about? I said, oh, no, nothing in my mind, just playing tricks on me. And then I had no idea he was going to be going out making a song about it. That is really remarkable. (laughs) Yeah, so Scarface, he's a musician from a family, long line of musical talent. And... He was also a high school dropout who got involved with the local drug trade when he was coming up. But, Noel, he also spent some time in a hospital psych ward after he attempted suicide once as a teenager. Now, you know, therapy was still pretty taboo in most black communities, but learning to express his feelings, it just really made him a cold songwriter. Hmm. Just listen to this second verse. One moment, he's in church praying for an exit out the drug game, and the next he's contemplating suicide before getting a grip. Day by day is more impossible to cope. I feel like I'm the one that's doing dope. Can't keep a steady hand because I'm nervous. Every Sunday morning I'm in service, praying for forgiveness. And trying to find an exit out the business. I know the Lord is looking at me, but yet it still is hard for me to feel happy. I often drift when I drive, having fatal thoughts of suicide. Bang and get it over with. And then I'm worry-free, but that's nonsense. Now, the thing is, you didn't have to be an ex-drug dealer like Scarface to relate to this song. You didn't even have to be from the ghetto like Ghetto Boys. If you were black, if you felt the pressure of growing up with a target on your back, Mind Playing Tricks was like your anxiety anthem. 
I mean, this was confessional rap. It was like street ministry. And it felt like he was telling us it's okay to acknowledge these emotions that we've been conditioned to hide. His message made it to some pretty unconventional spaces at the time, too. The first time I actually heard the song analyzed and wrote down was at church, Saudi. Somebody was preaching at church. That's Maurice Garland, music journalist and Southern hip-hop historian. He's telling me about the first encounter that he had with the song as a kid back in the 90s. You know how preachers do their little analogies with their sermons? It's like, and you know, it's like that ghetto boy song when your mind's playing tricks on you. He was breaking down like the depression, the drugs, the anxiety, the everything. He was corralling all this into his sermon. And that was like one of the first rap songs that I can remember where topics like that were even touched on. You know what I'm saying? So it was a very big deal for a gangster rap song to show this kind of vulnerability, to have the word nervous in it. Yeah, and a whole lot of other words. Gangster rap was basically considered America's nightmare back then, right? But, you know, it was also America's creation in some ways. The music was rebellious, it was aggressive, it was misogynistic and hyper-masculine to a fault. But one thing that it hadn't been much up until that point was vulnerable. And Mind Playing Tricks really became that first vulnerable gangster rap song. Think about it. This is almost a whole decade before Tony Soprano even had a psychiatrist on TV. So the Ghetto Boys, they really turned their fear inward with this song. They were hardcore hustlers in the song, but they weren't glorifying the streets. They were traumatized by them. Listen to this verse from Willie D. I make big money. I drive big cars. Everybody know me. It's like I'm a movie star, but late at night. Something ain't right. I feel I'm being tailed by the same sucker's headlights. So this is 1991. Mm. In 2019, what would you say the legacy of this song is today? Well, you know, this song, it made mental health a topic of conversation way ahead of its time in certain black communities. And it's still resonating. I mean, just last year, Popular radio personality Charlemagne the God, he wrote a whole book about confronting his anxiety and getting help for it. And it was totally inspired by the song. Now we got artists who regularly process their pain on record. It's a whole subgenre known as emo rap. Artists like Juice World, Lil Uzi Vert, even Post Malone, they're all clearly descendants of the Ghetto Boys and Scarface in particular, whether they know it or not. So there's still pain and a whole lot of the wrong coping mechanisms, but at least rappers who represent the streets aren't afraid to use their music as a way to express it anymore. Rodney Carmichael, thanks so much. Thank you, Noel. Rodney Carmichael writes about hip-hop for NPR Music, and we've been talking about Mind Playing Tricks on Me by the Ghetto Boys. New laws across the country would actually make it illegal for people to call the police on black people simply because they are black. A proposed ordinance, this is in Grand Rapids, Michigan, would make it a criminal misdemeanor to racially profile people of color for participating in their lives, which Jen calls living while black, and subject people behind those 911 calls to a $500 fine. And this is after two incidents there made the news. One, where police were actually called to a graduation party at a public park. The attendees were mostly black, and they said a noise complaint against them was really about white residents who were uncomfortable with a large gathering of black people. And then there was another incident months later in which police handcuffed two unarmed black 11-year-old brothers after a phone call reported a teen with a gun. In Oregon, you may remember the story, Democratic State Rep Janelle Bynum was actually going door-to-door in her district outside Portland to speak to constituents back in July 
when a resident called police on her because she looked suspicious. Now, Bynum is backing a bill that would allow victims of racially biased 911 calls about non-crimes to sue the callers in small claims court for up to $250. Bynum's proposal actually recently passed the House and a Senate committee, but in Grand Rapids and other areas, there are other areas where these laws are being proposed, critics are raising concerns, all right? And one of those concerns is making false crime reports is already illegal in many parts of the U.S., Another is that although it's relatively easy for police to show up at a scene to determine that there's no crime, it's harder to decide whether the 911 caller was acting in a racist manner in making a report. I don't think it is, if we're honest. Well, sometimes it's going to be, sometimes it's not going to be. I think that's the the truth of that. Mm -hmm. I kind of like that there's, you have some way to right this wrong. So I kind of like that door. But I do think some of the cases will be easy to, you know, be sort of obvious and some will not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I like the Oregon law better than I like the Michigan law. And I'd be, I'd have to hear more before I made up my mind if I was in one of those legislatures, right? Because on the one hand, we all know if you're decent people, the severity of the problem, it's preposterous. There's the guys who got uh, you know, in the in the Starbucks situation where they used the bathroom and and they were uh, police were called on them. There was a, a Yale graduate student who was taking a nap in her dorm room. Who sneaks into a dorm room at Yale to take a nap, <laughs> right? And she has a student ID card. It doesn't matter. Uh, harangued uh, illegally barbecuing in a park. That's not a thing. In in Michigan, this great uh, in in the story that Brooke just told you about. They got a permit for their graduation party. Right. See, you. So I want people to understand, no matter what you think the right solution is, that unfortunately, African Americans in this country live almost a different life than than non African Americans. Right. Like I would never even imagine getting a permit for a graduating graduation party at a park. It wouldn't even cross my mind. Why? Why would I? Like, if somebody told me that, I'd be like, don't waste your time. You don't need a permit. It's a park, right? But black folks have to go prepare ahead of time in case cops come, in case somebody calls on you, etc. Then there was a four businesswomen who were uh, uh, had the cops called on, on them for playing golf. <laughs> I mean, what? Is, and then my two, we just covered one today. The guy picking up trash in front of his own there. apartment building. Yeah. Who picks up trash in front of somebody else's apartment building? And how would that be dangerous? <laughs> There's the, and then my favorite story of all time: the kid who was mowing the lawn uh, for uh, his neighbor. And the cops get called on on that kid who mows somebody else's lawn, and how is that dangerous? So I I understand the severity of the problem, and if you don't, you're trying not to see it. And and when we explain to you the perspective of other people, and you see it with your own eyes, if you reject it, it says something about you. It's saying I don't care what other people experience; I only care about myself. And that's so I'm asking you to look into that. Okay, now when you get into remedies, I think the number one remedy is. Training of cops, etc., because I don't want any of these folks getting hurt. Uh, the, the Grand Rapids, Michigan one, it's a little tough because it makes it a criminal misdemeanor. And yes, it's a fine, and $500 is a lot of money. But some people might have genuinely been calling it in because they thought it was a, not the lawnmower guy, not, not any of the ones we just mentioned, right? But there could be more borderline cases that we are not seeing, mm-hmm. right? But the Oregon one says, hey, look, if you think it's really egregious, you can take him to small courts claim. It's not criminal. And you can win $250. And there, at least a judge would get to decide, was it egregious or was it not egregious? And it's small claims court. It doesn't take much time. So I think that's an interesting one that they should consider. That's my take on all of it. Yeah, I just want to say two things because I think like it's important to note that these people aren't Klan members. 
They're not intentionally, but they mm -hmm. don't realize that black people scare them and that that's still the same problem, whether you have your hood on or you don't, that still negatively affects my life the exact same way. So I don't yeah. really care what your intent was. It's yeah. just the fact that a black person scared you and you actually called the police. And on the point where it's like, well, you know, we already have these laws against false crimes. We also have a law against murder everywhere, but lawmakers all across the country are still wasting taxpayer money and time talking about infanticide. Mm. Yeah. So it's just, this is something that happens to matter. I don't know. I Yeah, so that's a great point. And I just want to build on what you said. A lot of times, right wingers shut down and they go, "Oh, so you know, if I'm worried about crime in my neighborhood, now all of a sudden you think I'm KKK." Mm -hmm. No, what we're saying is you don't have to be KKK. That's not the point. The point is maybe they're, and this doesn't just apply to right wingers, by the way. Unfortunately, the media has put this in a lot of our heads from the local news and the movies and everything else. And those stereotypes exist in the back of your head, and you might be doing harm to your fellow citizen without realizing it. And that's part of why we cover these stories. When you're a cop, you can torment freely and see me valley, then seize the Audi, then beam proudly, turn a routine traffic stop to your season finale when you're a cop. Over the last few decades, the Federal Way Police Department has drawn at least 11 civil rights lawsuits. KUOW's online managing editor, Isolde Raftery, took a closer look at these cases, including one from a young man named Josiah Hunter. She told me about what happened to Hunter one night back in 2014. So five years ago on this hot night in September, Josiah Hunter, who's a young man, he's 21, and his best friend, Junior Bazillion, drive to this AMPM in Federal Way. They buy a cigar, they smoke it, they get back into the car. It's actually Josiah's dad's car, dark cherry Cadillac Seville. And then they hear a bang, like a clap of thunder. I mean, mm. it's just like boom. And they jump out of the car to see what's going on. And they see that a Dodge pickup has slammed into another car and bam, into this pole. They run to the crash, right? They want to help out. And they pick up a bumper in the road, some shards of glass, and they start waving by traffic. They're, they're sort of seeing themselves as really helpful guys. And when the drunk driver walks off, they go get him and they return him to the scene. So they're feeling pretty good at this point about their position. And then Federal Way police arrive. What happens after that? Right. So the, the first officer on scene is a man named Chris Durrell. And when he arrives, he gets the feeling that Josiah Hunter and Junior Bazillion are just a little too involved. You know, at one point, Josiah picks up the drunk driver's wallet. And he says he's trying to help him out because the wallet had fallen onto the curb. But to Officer Durrell, it looks like Josiah might be trying to steal from the scene. And then a second officer shows up and he checks in with Officer Durrell and he walks into the AMPM mini mart to talk with the clerk. And he asks her if she wants the cops to kick the two young men, so Josiah and Junior, off the property what what is called trespassing them. And she says no because she can't even see them. But this second cop steps out of the AMPM and announces that the clerk wants them trespassed. And this trespass is it's key because this trespass means that Josiah and Junior can be arrested, right? So Josiah hearing this, he walks away from the AMPM parking lot and he makes this giant U around the parking lot because he's trying to avoid the officer, but what he does at this point is he's going back to his car and his car is on the AMPM property. And so he goes to his car, he opens his car door and Officer Durrell comes up behind him, slams him against his car and puts him in a chokehold. And 
Josiah describes this as happening all in a blink of an eye, and he starts to feel weak, and he feels his body sink, and he tries to tell Officer Durrell that he can't breathe, but he can't even talk at this point, and what comes out of his mouth sounds like a squeal. And after that, they were arrested and taken to jail and charged with resisting arrest and obstruction. And as you report, this wasn't the first time that Officer Durrell put someone in a chokehold. What did you learn about his history at the Federal Way Police Department? Right. So Chris Durrell is an expert at what police call a lateral vascular neck restraint. And Officer Durrell teaches it in Federal Way. And he has put at least 13 people in neck restraints in his 12-year career. Um, These are chokeholds, the neck restraints. And nine of those people became unconscious. Now, that may seem shocking to you. It was certainly shocking to me when um, when I first read about this. But it turns out that when someone passes out in this neck restraint, the hold is considered successful. There's literally a box on the police form that you check to say successful if someone passes out. Hmm. And I should add, though, that, you know, Federal Way defends this. So Federal Way thinks that this hold is is great and that actually it results in a lower use of force than, say, using a firearm. But NYPD bans these chokeholds. You might recall that Eric Garner died after being put in a chokehold. And so you asked about Durrell's history with the department. Mm-hmm. And he has a spotty history with the department. He's been sued three times in his, in 12 years, and one of those times was by Josiah Hunter. And another time was when he fired at a man 14 times. That was, that was deemed justified. And a third time was when he searched someone's house without a warrant. So in that case, the resident told him he could not enter, but he decided he was going to, and he handcuffed the resident and put him in the back of a patrol car. Now, you talked to the Federal Way police chief about your story. How did he respond? Chief Andy Huang is a huge advocate for his officers. He defended Officer Durrell vehemently. He called him polite and hardworking, and he said he's the kind of officer who wants to make a difference. He had stories about Officer Durrell performing CPR, which he said other officers don't necessarily do. And he feels that Officer Durrell is not at all a bad cop. You've also been looking into the Federal Way Police Department's history of violent interactions. What did you find there? I found at least 11 civil rights lawsuits in the last 20 years. That's the minimum amount. There may be others that I wasn't able to find. And I want to be clear that I'm counting lawsuits that went forward in the court system. Um, I'm not counting what I determined were frivolous or fender benders, that sort of thing. So these would be physical sort of use of force lawsuits. And I'll tell you about one case that surprised me. There were there were quite a few, but it surprised me, I think, most because it never got picked up by the press. In fact, none of these cases got picked up by the press. But this is a case of a black teenager who was eight weeks pregnant. This is 2002. She's sitting in her car with her girlfriends, and there's also a baby in the car. And an officer knocks on the window, and he asks them for their IDs. And he hands back the IDs, and she then gets out of the car. She thinks she's free to go. And he says, you know, you're not free to go. And he takes her down in what he calls a hair hold. And she says in her lawsuit that he then need her several times in the back. And he really, it was it was a rough situation. So then he arrests her on um, obstruction of a police officer, I think is what the, the charge is called. And he takes her to jail. And she's released hours later at 3 a.m., and she starts complaining of cramping. And two weeks later, she miscarries. 
Now, from what I understand from an OBGYN, it's actually hard to make the connection between what happened and the miscarriage because a lot of people do miscarry in the first trimester and the fetus is very protected. So it could have been a coincidence. The result of that case is that she settled with Federal Way for $42,000. Now, back to the young man you were telling us about at the beginning of our conversation, Josiah Hunter. He filed a lawsuit against the department. What happened with his case? His case went to trial last summer and... It lasted about a week, and the jury awarded him $640,000. Now, the Federal Way Police Department has appealed that to the Ninth Circuit, so this is um, still in legal limbo right now. And what's happened to Josiah Hunter in the meantime? He is now a longshoreman, a union longshoreman with the Port of Seattle. KUOW's online managing editor, Isolde Raftery, thank you for your reporting. Thank you, Kim. The charges against Hunter were eventually dropped a year after his arrest. And after Hunter filed his lawsuit, a federal jury did find that Officer Durrell used excessive force when he put him in a chokehold. Hunter's case has also prompted the Federal Way City Council to take up discussions about police oversight. Isolde has written an in-depth story on this. You can read it at KUOW.org. The Man Not. Race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. How does someone become an adult after being robbed of a childhood? A new Netflix miniseries examines this question. It's based on the case of a group of black and Latino teenagers known as the Central Park Five. In April 1989, a woman was brutally beaten and raped in New York's Central Park. Five boys were pressured into false confessions and convicted. All served time. When everything was going on, I couldn't really follow what was happening. I didn't get it. Inside, I started reading the articles, how they wrote them against us from the first days, all the transcripts, the straight-up lies they told. I watched my tape. I don't even know who that kid is. I don't even recognize myself. I know, Ray. That's Freddie Miyares, the actor who plays Raymond Santana, one of the five. The real Raymond Santana reached out on Twitter to the director and screenwriter Ava DuVernay, and he asked if she would tell the story of what he, Antron McRae, Kevin Richardson, Yusuf Salam, and Corey Wise went through. DuVernay said yes. She talked with our co-host Noel King about how this project got started. I get a lot of tweets. It <laughs> happened on Twitter. It was shortly after Selma, and I got a tweet from Raymond Santana asking what would be my next film after Selma, Central Park Five. And this story uh, is one that I knew. I was a teenager on the West Coast when they were teenagers on the East Coast. I remember it being in the news. I'd recently seen the documentary by Sarah Burns. So I paid attention to the tweet this time, and it meant a lot to be asked by them. When you sat down to talk to these men for the first time, what were some of the things they told you that made you think, oh, there's so much more here than we know? Well, the personal stories for Antron McRae, for example, whose family dynamic completely broke apart. He was a part of a gorgeous small family unit, his mother, his father, and himself living in Harlem. And on this particular night when he's brought in, his father is in the room with him, and his father is, is kind of blackmailed and pushed and coerced into forcing his son to confess. Listen to me, Tron. I need you to do what the police want you to do. You got to say what they want you to say. They want me to lie. I don't think of it like that. Just 
say what they want you to say. Which the son does after much protest, and from there their relationship was never the same. The story is so poignant, but it's also so telling in terms of the fracturing of family that happens when you know one person is incarcerated. Well, that part really comes through. I, I kept thinking as I was watching the movie, the whole family might as well be behind bars. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the best thing to liken it to for people that don't have anyone who's incarcerated is grief. You know, most of us have lost someone in our life, and we know what that feels like. So it's this idea of separation, but a presence that never allows the grief to change into anything else except um, a deep absence that is uh, uh, inescapable. Your series is very blunt in its portrayal of police and prosecutors. These teenage boys, at this point they're boys, they are brought into interrogation They are told, you'll get out of trouble if you confess. You show their faces very close up. And I wonder, was getting in that close, was that a choice to show us, to remind us that these were kids? Well, yeah, I mean, every decision in the film was a choice as a director, but I I think the proximity of the camera to the subject was less about showing that they were kids and mostly about showing that they were terrified. Please assign it, please. Just because you waive an attorney right now, it it doesn't mean it's forever, right? I don't even... You get your brother home. You and your mother figure things out with a lawyer. We'll clear this all. I don't want to stay here. I don't want to stay here anymore. I'm tired of being here. I don't want to be here anymore. Please sign it. We don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be here. I want to go home. Okay, I'm a black or brown kid in a closed room with white men who are authority figures who have guns on their belts and badges. And so, yeah, the proximity to the camera and the choices and camera movement and framing and composition, all of that, was to bring you into the heartbeat of the boys as they their adrenaline starts to rush from the terror of where they were. As recently as late November 2018, Linda Fairstein, who was the sex crimes prosecutor in the film she's played by Felicity Huffman, she was insisting that her office did nothing wrong. And I wonder, while you were researching this film, while you were doing interviews, did you have an opportunity to talk to anyone involved in the investigation or the prosecution? We made the opportunity available to them to speak with me, and many refused. Hmm. Um, Some did speak to me and asked that it not be revealed that they did. But the character that you're speaking of, her real-life counterpart, refused to speak to me, yeah. Hmm. I know that you saw the film with some of the men. What did they think? How did they react when they saw this dramatization of their lives on screen? A lot of tears, a lot of relief on their part, I think, feeling that uh, their story was finally going to be told and seen and heard. And um, just a very intimate, personal, emotional moment that um, I think outweighs anything that I've experienced as a filmmaker up until this point. My goal was to tell their stories and to you know, get the well done from them with tears in their eyes was everything I need. Do you think that these men are at peace with what happened? No, no, they're not at peace. No amount of money can bring back your childhood. Everything's been affected by this. Many people in this that I've come across across the country over the past four years, don't know how the story ends, just think Central Park Five, actually think they're just still incarcerated or that they got out, but they did it. Not everyone knows about the exoneration. 
<laughs> there's so much you can't get back. So, yeah. no, I think they're far from peace. But I, I do hope there's satisfaction for them and at least being able to finally have their side of the story heard and seen. That's filmmaker Ava DuVernay speaking with Noelle King about her new Netflix series, When They See Us. We should say Netflix is one of NPR's sponsors. We also reached out to former prosecutor Linda Fairstein for comment. She told us her attorney sent documents and videos related to the investigation to the series producers and that she would only agree to speak with them after they had reviewed the materials. Fairstein said she never heard back from producers after that. She also called the depiction of her in this series grossly inaccurate and said the film is a, quote, fictional dramatization of events. Why haven't you learned anything? Racial disparity in academic achievement remains one of the leading problems in American education, both at the K-12 through and the college level. A number of studies show greater diversity in the teaching profession can address some of those concerns. Hari Srinivasan has a look at a teacher training program that's aiming to increase diversity in the classroom and improve results all the way through college. It's the latest story in our special series on Rethinking College and part of our regular education segment, Making the Grade. Actually, class, are we subtracting time or adding time? Adding time. We're adding time. Francisco Martinez will earn his teaching certificate this month, but the 26-year-old teacher-to-be wants to be more to his students. My goal is to be a good role model. Martinez, who was born in the U.S. to immigrant parents, says that his own teachers in school were overwhelmingly white. He hopes his background will resonate with elementary school students in Fresno, California, where the district's enrollment is 67% Hispanic. I feel like I can relate a lot to the students. Some of the experiences they're going through, I've seen myself. And I guess, in a sense, I can ha- kind of provide another ear or another person to rely on. Martinez may be right. I'm going to keep my welcome short because I... Cassandra Herring heads an alliance that helps prepare teachers for diverse student classrooms. We know from research that having a teacher of color um, actually can move student achievement. Um, It actually can help keep kids in school and persist uh, uh, to college. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, more than half of all public school students are either racial or ethnic minorities, and that number is only rising. At the same time, 80% of their teachers are white. Experts in higher education are trying to fix that gap. We need to make sure that every single ed prep program is training every single teacher candidate to bring about student achievement gains for all learners. While minority students have made gains in recent years, an achievement gap still exists between the races. According to the U.S. Department of Education, in some grades, the gap in reading and math achievement between whites and their Hispanic and black classmates remains in the double digits. I'm so excited that we are here today for the spring convening. Herring's alliance called Branch Ed launched a new initiative with colleges across the country to improve teacher preparation programs. When we launch our classrooms, capture what you see and hear teachers saying and doing. This month, the Alliance met in Fresno at Vang Pao Elementary School to observe student-teacher candidates from California State University, Fresno, including Francisco Martinez's class. How many of us thought that was false? Raise your hand. Observers used a rubric to assess the role of diversity in teaching and learning. 
by looking through the lens of that tool, it gives educators, these faculty, the opportunity to reflect back on what they're doing on their own campuses. When we come back from our observations, we want to process the information and then go deeper with it. One observation came from Nikesha Williams, an assistant professor from North Carolina A&T State University. There was one black female student in the classroom. She did not participate in sharing out. I didn't hear that girl's voice in the classroom holistically at all. There's research that supports this marginalization of black females, particularly as it relates to math. And it struck me that as a teacher, you think about how can you be more inclusive how can you dispel myths? How can you um, um, support this uh, disproportionate representation? Does teaching need to change as our demographics and as our country changes? I think it does. I think the race-blind, color-blind, language-blind, culture-blind uh, educational system of the past is failing us. It's obsolete. Because our classrooms are becoming so diverse, to not equip teachers to know how to really leverage that diversity in a positive way to move forward student achievement is only going to increase the achievement gap. A shift toward what's called culturally responsive teaching, or cultural proficiency, is gaining traction among educators. What are our attributes that we're measuring? An attribute is a to better serve students of color, teachers create conversation about inequities and cultural relevance. The time she got on what? On the bus. On the bus. Everybody say on the bus. On the bus. Francisco Martinez uses Spanish references in his lesson plans. For example, uh, there was one math lesson I led once. We were working with distances. So I said, so-and-so wants to go get an horchata beverage. How long does so-and-so have to walk to get that beverage before I could finish the sentence? So many kids were saying, oh, I've had horchata, I've had horchata, horchata's great. While California State University at Fresno has been successful at recruiting many minority teacher candidates, enrolling African-American males is still a challenge. Let's see hands, let's see hands. Eric, what's different about it? We do need to improve on how we uh, recruit African-American males. I think nationwide that should be at the forefront of, of the discussion. Most of our students naturally blend into... Laura Alamillo is the dean of the School of Education at the university. And so the work we do in the Kremen School is to make sure that all of our educators come out fully prepared to work. She recently visited local black churches to try and attract more African-Americans toward a teaching career. I think it's, it's time to reach out to this particular community to see if there maybe I could spark some interest. It's not only the presence of a teacher of color, it's the lens, it's the mindset of coming with these, you know, just really valuable assets. What does one hour and 30 minutes represent? Leslie? Ultimately, cultivating great teachers is likely to be the best recruiting tool of all. Most teachers, if you ask a teacher, why do you become a teacher, their why is because they had a teacher, one teacher that inspired them, that encouraged them to be the best that they could be and pushed them. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Hari Srinivasan in Fresno, California. She's pure alligator, pure white. Albinos that do make it to reproductive age can't find a mate because they look funny. What's cute, fluffy, and white all over? 
And no, it's not a joke with a terrible punchline. You know I don't do those. It is, in fact, an all-white panda that wildlife experts in China say has been photographed for the first time in the wild. Terry Egan reports. What's said to be the first of its kind to be photographed, this one has red eyes and is completely white. And it was caught while crossing the forest in the Wanlung Nature Reserve in Sichuan Province. According to researchers there, it was spotted by an infrared camera placed in the area some 2,000 metres above sea level. Now, various experts have said this might be a mutation, but according to one of them from the School of Life Sciences at Peking University, it's the first case of a wild panda having albino genes. In fact, it demonstrates that these genes exist in giant pandas. He also pointed out that the panda looked strong and was walking steadily, suggesting that the difference did not affect its health. As for the reserve, it's said it'll increase the number of infrared cameras in the area so as to monitor this first all-white panda's life and activities. That was Terry Egan. Move women, Janet and Janine Africa, free at last. For two move women, Janet and Janine Africa, it had been decades since they walked the streets of Philadelphia or rode in a car. Decades? Yes, over four to be exact. Exactly 41 years since the urban war in West Philadelphia on August 8, 1978. Just a few days ago, they walked away from Cambridge Springs Women's Prison, got into a car, and began the long-awaited trek home. Some six months after their move sister, Debbie Africa, was released. For Janet and Janine, entering the car was a trip into the future, for the car was full of electronic gadgetry, one sister having not traveled by car in decades, experienced a brief bout of car sickness, but now, for the first time in 41 years, Janet and Janine Africa can walk in a park and smell the flowers. For the first time in 41 years, Janet and Janine Africa can walk down a city street unencumbered. For them, Philadelphia is surely not the city of brotherly love. Janet and Janine Africa are the last move women held after the MOVE confrontation of August 8, 1978, when cops attacked the West Philadelphia MOVE house. Several MOVE brothers remain. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. You see me, boy, in Virginia, don't go bang, bang, in Virginia, don't go A fuller picture is starting to emerge of what happened Friday afternoon when a gunman walked into a government office complex in Virginia Beach and killed 12 people. The gunman also died. This afternoon, Mayor Bobby Dyer spoke about the city's response to the mass shooting. We will not be defined by this horror. We will go forward. We are a city of resiliency and resolve. 
the true character of our city is going to rest with our public, our citizens, and our neighbors. I'm joined by NPR's Bobby Allen, who was at that briefing in Virginia Beach. Good afternoon, Bobby. Hey, Don. In a minute, we're going to hear from Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. But what more did officials say about the status of the investigation? So what we learned is that federal investigators led by the FBI are now directing the evidence gathering portion of the investigation. So that basically means they're interviewing the shooter's former colleagues, his neighbors, uh, people who knew him quite well, you know, really digging into his background. Uh, Federal officials say um, they also recovered two weapons from the gunman and both were 40 caliber handguns. And they say the shooter purchased them legally. Any new information about the 12 people killed in the office? So we knew that all but one of the of the victims were uh, government employees who were colleagues of the shooter. Uh, city officials say they're now helping families plan funerals, memorials, vigils, and at all those events, we, you know, we're really expected to get kind of a fuller glimpse of the victims' lives because right now we only really know their names and how long they worked in local government. And what more do we know at this point about the gunman and what may have motivated him? So all we know is his name is Dwayne Craddock. He was a 15-year employee of the local government here. He worked as an engineer in the city's utility department. Police have again and again strongly deflected questions about him since the rampage. Now, they're really trying to focus on those who died. So 11 of them were Craddock's colleagues. And police say, you know, in addition to the handguns, Craddock had extended ammunition magazines, so those high-capacity magazines, and he had this device called a silencer. And some witnesses who were in the building at the time of the shooting said they heard like 40 and 50 shots fired. But uh, authorities just won't talk about motives yet. And what do we know about the kind of security the government offices had in place before the shooting? So authorities say, you know, security in the complex is being reviewed. Um, Some regulars to the municipal building who I just caught up with here um, repeatedly brought up that point. Like this guy I met, Doug Dykeman, he is a general contractor from Virginia Beach. You know, he goes to the government complexes where the shootings happen like a couple times a week. He goes there to pull building permits. It's a pretty regular thing for him. And he told me, you know, when he walks in, he often wonders why there's no security at the door. It's kind of scary because you can go in any of the offices. You can wander around the whole complex into all the buildings, but, you know, nobody supervising or nobody checking you out. And the, the chief of police here, when I asked him at the press conference specifically about that, he said, yeah, it's under review, but they will not yet commit to increased security, you know, such as metal detectors. Yeah, you know, the police chief sort of suggested that at this point, that might be a, a bit of an overcorrection to subject every single public employee to have to go through a metal detector. But um, whether there's going to be uh, increased security or not, uh, we will see soon. Uh, all right. That's NPR's Bobby Allen. Thanks. Thank you. And now we're joined by Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. Governor, thanks for taking the time for us today. Yes, sir, Don. Thank you for talking to me and just a horrific tragedy here in Virginia Beach. Well, I want to offer condolences to you and the Virginia Beach community. I'm wondering what you can tell us about how people are holding up. I understand you visited a hospital where some of the people wounded in the shooting are being treated still. I did. You know, this is, again, it's a horrific tragedy, and our, our hearts go out to uh, certainly the, the 12 uh, victims that uh, showed up for work yesterday for the city of Virginia Beach, uh, intending to go home, and uh, this tragedy occurred, and they, they weren't able to. And so there's a tremendous void uh, in their families and our community right now. There's a lot of 
of hurt and healing that needs to take place. I was able to go to the hospital this morning. My uh, intentions were twofold. I wanted to thank the caregivers, the, the doctors, the nurses, and the administrators. And then uh, also uh, I was able to, to speak with one of the patients and, and the families. And uh, they're just such strong and, and faithful people and just going through what must be uh, one of the hardest experiences in their life. They were just very grateful for the care that they were receiving and grateful for the heroic uh, work of the law enforcement agents yesterday. Inevitably, after each mass shooting, there are calls for tighter gun laws. You introduced a number of gun control bills in Virginia's General Assembly back in January, not even six months ago. Yes. Uh, most of them were voted down, including a proposal to let localities ban guns in government buildings like the one where this shooting took place. Do you see any likelihood of political action in the Republican-controlled General Assembly? Well, Don, it's unfortunate that we have to have these tragedies to, you know, even have the dialogue regarding common sense gun legislation. As, as you just said, I, I introduced several uh, pieces of common sense gun legislation both years uh, that I've been governor, and they were defeated on the first day of the session. So uh, this is something that I will continue to support. I will continue to explore our options. But, you know, as we say, actions speak a lot louder than words, and uh, I will uh, have the leadership uh, that's needed, but I will ask my fellow legislators to explore these options as well. And, you know, at the end of the day, we need to make sure that Virginia is safe, uh, that our communities are safe, our schools, our movie theaters, our municipalities, like what occurred yesterday. This is, you know, this is uh, something that these tragedies have become all too familiar, and we cannot let ourselves become desensitized to this. Uh, we must uh, do what the people are, are asking to do, and and that is to, to move forward and, and make sure that our communities are safe. I'd like to ask you about the coming days and how you and, and, and other officials are going to help people in your state move forward. Well, you know, there's, there are so many agencies and, and men and women that are giving of their time to right now, uh, Don, help these families. I mean, this is a tremendous tragedy, and uh, they've lost their loved ones. And you know, We have funerals to prepare for. Um, we have you know, the ongoing business of Virginia Beach that, that needs to continue. Uh, we have a lot of friends uh, and co-workers of these individuals that, you know, that we're, we're helping them with, with counseling. Um, there have been a, a number of uh, prayer vigils here in Virginia Beach. I attended one this morning, and, and those will certainly continue. But, you know, as we say, uh, in, in uh, occurrences like this, it takes a village, and uh, we just have a very strong and faithful village here in Virginia Beach that's uh, going to try to heal as we move forward. We've been talking to Ralph Northam. He's Virginia's Democratic governor. Governor, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Don. Context of white supremacy. The Coon Man dominating 2019. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, June 1, 2019. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have questions, observations, counter racist suggestions you would like to offer. The number 605 313 five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound 
press star six one if you would like to participate. The number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. few things before we get started. We are listener-supported, counter-racist radio invest. If you think the program is constructive, visit my blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. When you hit the blog, PayPal button is in the top right corner. Much obliged to all the folks who have invested a decade plus. Uh, Thanks so much for keeping the broadcast rolling. Uh, Hopefully we have been worthy of your time and energy. Uh, If you're not into PayPal, drop us an email. We'll get you a physical mailing address. Uh, In addition to PayPal mailing something, you can also use Amazon. Uh, My wish list is linked under Gus T. Renegade at Amazon.com. It is also linked at the blog right beneath the PayPal button. Uh, again, tremendous gratitude to all the investors who have nabbed items from the wish list over the past 10 years. Uh, hopefully the cows has provided accurate, constructive information on what it means to be white, what white supremacy racism is, and things that non-white people victims of racism can and should be doing to solve this problem ASAP. Additionally, the COWS 10-year anniversary counter-racist yoga retreat, uh, we did round one in the Coon Man's state, Virginia, uh, looking to do round two in California. Uh, Labor Day weekend, the date's August 29. That is a Thursday to Sunday, September 1, four days, three nights, counter-racist activity, yoga in the morning, Yoga in the evening, plant-based meals every day, all day. Uh, Chef Nadira flying out from VA to prepare the meals and and to give us some counter-racist food workshops. We had Dr. Lathan on the program. Uh, Just gave us all that great information this past week on Wednesday, I think it was. Uh, Chef Nadira covered some of the same topics in showing how you can prepare meals and different strategies you can do uh, use to prepare meals uh, at the beginning of the week and that sort of thing. And you can ask questions, certainly, but all of that, again, August 29th through September 1. Drop an email if you are interested in registering uh, the sign-up. So next Sunday, not tomorrow, but next Sunday, June 9, uh, the deadline, if you want to sign up the deposit, $400 by next Sunday. Final portion, $375, would be due the first week in August. That is all-inclusive, room and board, yoga, counter-racist workshops, no mud. Again, untiljustice at gmail.com. Drop an email if you would like to register, sign up, need more information uh, about the retreat. Next, I super appreciated the StoryCorps report where the black male victim of racism was discussing the impact uh, of his father 
uh, his father coming to support him uh, at his athletic contests and his father uh, helping him with his homework and staying up all night to learn a subject algebra that he wasn't wasn't his strongest so that he could help his his child getting it up at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, I just I contrast that to the new American classic, The Hate You Give, which is allegedly about showing some gratitude for black fathers and some appreciation for the work that they do. Uh, in that small little, you know, four minute audio snippet, just with a black male talking about, you know, his dad helping him with his homework and coming to support him at, you know, hostile, racist high school athletic contests. Heard all about that in Sundown Towns. Uh, I felt more genuine appreciation for attempted black fathers than in the entire text of the hate you give, which is supposed to be about that's supposed to be a central theme. Appreciation for black male dads. Next. <clears throat> the segment where they were talking about the racist places. Uh, it was called nigger Hill, Negro Hill. Now it's freedom Hill. Uh, I would support them switching it back to nigger Hill. Uh, in India, and there's lots of that. That's in Sundown Towns as well. James Lowen, that's the book club every Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Lots of constructive info. He has a whole section. I almost took a snippet from the book uh, to preface that audio report uh, in Lowen's book where he, he talks about how they would purge the black people from a particular area and then they would put them in, you know, wherever on the outskirts <clears throat> and they would brand the new place for the exiled black people, they would call that uh, nigger town, niggerville, names like that. That was very common uh, throughout. He mentions that several times uh, in the text and having these types of names, uh, nigger cliff, nigger ridge, nigger hill. That is not just a U.S. thing. If you go way back in the Cal's archives uh, to 2011, Dr. Ann Patel Gray was with us was with us live from Australia and ooh, I got my books now. I bet I could probably put my hand on it. She has a map in the book that shows Australia and they have the same thing. Nigger River, uh, Three Nigger Hill, that sort of thing all across the continent of Australia. Same thing. Global system of white terrorism. Uh, next. Speaking of cows, archives. Uh, so the segment on Walt Whitman, I had to play it. So many reasons I had to play it. I'm sure we have some listeners, regardless of your age group, you are required to study or learn, read, recite perhaps even some Walt Whitman while you were in school, undergrad, high school, elementary, kindergarten, somewhere in there, I suspect. Anywhere in the world, I suspect. Second, <clears throat> reading is more important than watching television. The Grandcester. <clears throat> However, Mr. Fuller and many others have said you can learn a lot about white supremacy racism watching television, any television, really. What I have maintained for years, one of the best programs that is all about white supremacy racism, Breaking Bad, the main character is Walter White, and they make Walt Whitman a central aspect of the plot of one of the most successful television programs of all time, even though it's been off the air for six years now. Uh, the what I preface the audio report on Walt Whitman 
was from a sound clip from uh, Breaking Bad where they actually have a pause from the script to have a recital of Whitman's poetry. And as I said, that Walt Whitman is an integral aspect of the plot, in addition to his name being almost identical to the main character. In that audio segment uh, from New York Public Radio, they mentioned a Northwestern student who was failed in a class because he refused a graduate's class, uh, to be specific, uh, was failed because he refused to recite Walt Whitman. That student, victim of white supremacy, was Timothy McNair, guest on the context of white supremacy. Uh, I tweeted out that uh, episode from the archives where you can go back and hear in detail uh, how he learned about Mr. Whitman. We read some of Mr. Whitman's views on niggers because he doesn't say views on race. In the segment, the uh, suspected white man doing the interview, he kept saying consistently, well, what were views on race? What were Whitman's thoughts on race? What did he have to say about race? He didn't call him a racist and he didn't say what were his thoughts on black people. He could have been real explicit and accurate to what Whitman said. His thoughts on Negros. What were his thoughts on Negros? Because that's the word he used. He never said, let me tell you my thoughts on race. He said, let me tell you why I think the Negros should have stayed in slavery. That's what we're talking about. Be explicit. Now, she did uh, say Rebecca Carroll, the victim of racism who was being interviewed. uh, She did say, oh, yeah. Whitman did compare black people to baboons, but I mean, it's a lot more than that. And they waited a long time to even bring out those details in the segment. They spent much more time talking about, oh, this guy is worse, Walt Whitman and his place in American literature. And, oh, man, it would have been great if Malcolm X could have had time to sit in the grass and think. And that is burying the lead, as they say. We are supposed to be talking about Walt Whitman and racism. Why are we having to wait halfway through the report before we even get to that? And even then, they still obscure it. They move and and start talking about another victim of racism who wrote a report imagining Walt Whitman to be an abolitionist, even though that, too, is not accurate to the record. Well, he did, in fact, write about helping a white man sell a slave. That would be true. Not let's try to reconfigure and imagine fabricate a world where Walt Mitten didn't think of black people as incompetent niggers and didn't want us to stay in slavery. Let's try to imagine something else. That sort of thing is so dangerous. I feel whites do that on a, or it's not, I feel the evidence shows whites do that on a regular basis uh, where they pretend practice racism. They're being deceptive, make it seem like they are reporting, sharing truthful information about racism and even involve other victims, non-white people in this production, but it's not sharing truthful information at all. Uh, They obfuscate. They move away from it. They don't even use accurate terms to describe what's being talked about here. Uh, And they could have even said, yeah, Walt Whitman was a racist. It's undeniable. The AP just had that. Let's not pussyfoot. According to the evidence, he was a racist, even by his peer standards. There were whites of that time period who didn't think that black people should have been, quote unquote, slaves. Uh, So if that's true, the question would be, well, why is he still so revered? And that's not attached to racism. Or is the fact that he's so celebrated is a part of that because of racism? Is that why he would be he would get a whole poem read in Breaking Bad? Those would be better questions, in my opinion, as opposed to kind of pussyfooting, minimizing Whitman's dedication to white supremacy and then moving off to other projects and quoting confused victims. Uh, Next. The case where they talked about in Federal Way, there's two black males. 
it was a car accident and the two black males, they were at a gas station. They went to go help. They were clearing debris from the road and then they ended up getting choked out and all of that. Federal Way is about uh, approximately 20 miles south of Seattle, give or take. It's not very far. You can get there uh, roughly 30 minutes depending on traffic time of day. It's not very far. Uh, they, I think they said the officer who choked out one of the black males that now he's a longshoreman here in Seattle. It's not. They're very, very close. You can catch I think you can catch a city bus, one city bus from Seattle to Federal Way. It's not very far. Um, that report. I mean, there's number one, if you're out at night. I think we've had many people who have talked about, do you intervene? Now, this was a car accident. People have presented this in terms of intervention. Do you intervene if there's a fight, if a white person's attacking a black person, that sort of thing? I, and I think Mr. Fuller, other folks have said, it's a lot to consider. If this was not your plan to get involved with something, like, wow, things can go drastically wrong. You have no idea. All it could take is one white person to show up. Doesn't even have to be an enforcement official one white person to show up and things can go drastically wrong. Traffic accident, alcohol involved, talk about sobriety. You go to assist the enforcement officers and somehow now you are suspect in all of this. You are being treated or it's not even treated. You end up getting choked out and arrested uh, in all of this. Wow. Uh <laughs> I can only say it's a whole lot to consider if you're going to be out. And I think that's one of those why Dr. Kanban suggests not being out late at night because that sort of thing can happen so easily. Even if they hadn't got involved, let's say they had just stayed in the car, stayed in their vehicle, right? The accident happens. Whoa, can you believe that? That's crazy. They try and pull out a leave. The cops could have stopped them. You saw something. Wait here. We're going to get a story from you. You look suspicious. Are you under the influence? System of racism, white supremacy, that sort of thing happens all the time um the enforcement officials going in it was reported to go in and ask the uh attendant do you want to trespass them from the station and all of that i guess i can only say ask i mean it's a tough situation all the way but maybe ask if you can uh, access your vehicle uh that seems like the type of situation where the officers were looking to terrorize just looking for an opportunity to terrorize these victims so if it's one of those situations you just try to do the best you can but maybe try asking uh that way you can let them know directly and i mean they can still do whatever they're going to do but horrible situation all the way around they were charged with uh obstructing obstructing officers. I point out that that happened very close to Seattle. There was an article in the Seattle newspaper 2007. I remember the year specifically because this was one year before the cows came into existence. I was on the University of Washington campus and there was a white enforcement officer who walked by he heard I was with a group of non-white people. They were talking about racism. He stopped to talk to them briefly and then he left. I saw him again later the same day and he stops. Now he wants to talk a lot about racism. This white man, he confesses. People call me every day, all the time. Oh my goodness. There's a black fella down there. You got to go do something. And he says, he'll be like, well, what, what's he, what's he doing? He says, I just told you there's a black fella down there. You need to go get him. He says this happens all and he got super. 
he placed a great deal of emphasis. This was not one of those, oh yeah, I deal with that about once a week. This was, oh man, this is every day I deal with. That was the way that he conveyed it, like with that much emphasis. And he said it multiple times with emphasis. This is every day that, you know, black fella there, not a black person looking like they're looking in vehicles, not a black person with a crowbar looking like they're doing something suspicious, just walking on the sidewalk. You need to go get them. And he says he'll try and explain to him, well, if the person's not doing something illegal or suspicious, I mean, niggers can walk. I mean, that's not reason. He alleges this is what he tells them. But he said this. We've been having this long discussion about racism. The very next day, the article comes out in the paper about black people being uh, it was an article in the Seattle uh, newspaper about black people being disproportionately charged with obstructing officers. And we had just in that same conversation, the white officer had just said, you say something, you smirk. In fact, the title of the report that I played from uh, Federal Way was that these two black males had defiant smiles. I can post the report if you you know want to read, but that's what it was titled, Defiant Smiles. But the white officer in Seattle, he was saying, oh, yeah, same thing Norm Stamper said. Oh, yeah. You looked at him. You didn't walk fast enough. Looked like you weren't getting your, your wallet out quick enough. Uh, anything like that, much less you made a you know snide remark, sound like you were trying to be an uppity nigger, like, oh, yeah, obstruction of justice. That'll be enough to get discretion. My word, discretion, major one, but all of that came to mind with the report. It was not lost on Gus T. They alleged in the report that these two victims, they went to this convenience store to get a cigar. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Getting a cigar is not a crime, nor is that a reason to be choked out. Speaking of choked out, words are important. They didn't say that the suspected race soldier used the chokehold. They called it a lateral vascular neck restraint. That is precise codified language. Victims of white supremacy, that should be our goal. We are striving to be as precise, effective with the use of words, lateral vascular neck restraint it sounds so scientific it sounds so professional you're not a goon going out choking someone out this is your last breath nigger remember how norm stamper used to say got my nigger knocker got my nigger choker no this is a lateral vascular neck restraint you see we've had the finest physicians the coon man come in and show us the best way to get someone to black out let me show you skillful use of work that expertise being able to use language to suggest or convey competence oh sparkling illustration next in that report the same report about federal way the officers at the convenience store they said that this officer who uh has a history with the lateral vascular neck restraint they said that he also has a history of conducting searches without a warrant i think some moron is known for saying hey you need to make sure you are not being searched without a warrant you don't say it as though you got an army behind you you don't want to be placed in a lateral vascular neck restraint you want to calmly say sir ma'am 
I do not consent to searches of my person, property, residence, or vehicle without a warrant. Even if he handcuffs you, hope he doesn't choke you out. Even if he handcuffs you and does the search anyway, that can come up in court the same way that you heard right there. I did not agree to this search. I did not consent and he did not have a warrant. This should be thrown out. And that is exactly what happens sometimes, even with victims. Next, uh, the Central Park Five, I guess I'll I'll ask on that one if anyone has been on Netflix to see that uh, Ava DuVernay's series. I have not. I only ask because there's already a documentary uh, on the Central Park Five, Sarah Burns, who is also a guest on the context of white supremacy 2012. You can go back in the archives. Uh, she actually was a guest in between. Sarah Burns has a book on the Central Park Five, which I have read. The book was published. We talked about that when she came on the program. The, her visit was before her film was released. So I had not seen the documentary and I actually still have not seen that documentary, even though I own it. Uh, but there already is a project. I just thought that was it reminded me of what I've said about it becoming a genre, uh, the death of black people, necrophilia, even though the Central Park Five, these black males weren't killed, uh, but still to make. Uh, and this is this is not a documentary. This is like a docudrama uh, to make a dramatized uh, series on Netflix uh, about black males being falsely accused of rape as children uh, and convicted, incarcerated to make a kind of TV show type thing about this, even though they said it was the victim's request, at least some of them. Uh, it was not. That was not something that I was excited about. I didn't know how to feel about that. I'll ask how other folks feel uh, with that. <clears throat> This is the only broadcast where I request that we not use metaphors. Uh, they used quite a few in the segments as they normally do. Uh, colorblind, raceblind, all of those are metaphors and dangerous metaphors. Again, they obfuscate, they're hiding from the truth and racists in my view, they do that on a regular basis. Uh, they will use metaphors, <clears throat> analogies, similes, these comparisons to deliberately generate confusion. They will compare <clears throat> two entities and insist that they are equal, identically the same, and frequently they are not. This happens on a regular basis. Uh, victims, myself included, we are still learning. We've been exposed to this misconduct uh, for centuries, uh, and many of us, we are still learning. As such, there are times where we are lacking logic to articulate our views uh, as such, we'll substitute and incorporate a metaphor or comparison of some sort. Uh, if we could make an effort to strive for precision, lateral vascular neck restraint, precision, constructive precision with words. That's what we're striving for. If we cannot be exact, specific with what we would like to say, please take a little bit more time so that we can articulate ourselves in the best way possible. No metaphors. I will prompt about that. Thank you kindly. Uh, if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, questions, suggestions, that would be grand. Uh, that way everybody will get at least one chance to share. Uh, we should have ample time if you have additional questions or thoughts that you would like to provide. The number again, 605-313-5500. Six four 
the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. I will only say again, it is the year of the Coon Man. In February, we were planning for the Cow's Yoga Retreat in Virginia. There were calls for him to resign. The Lieutenant Governor Fairfax was polishing up his speech, becoming only the second Negro governor in the history of the Commonwealth. And we are not even four months removed. All of that has been forgotten. The investigation is done. Justin Fairfax is almost the one that is fighting off uh, rape allegations. Uh, And no one is talking about the coon man leaving. In fact, the coon man is out saying that he is going to help the state of Virginia heal and get through this. The shooting, not him being the coon man and a racist, but we're going to heal and get through this together. Now, let's all hold hands and we'll remember the great Negro entertainer, Michael Jackson. We'll get to folks. Star six one. If you have comments, thoughts you would like to share, people should pay serious attention to the Virginia uh, shooting. Some of the victims in that case were black. uh, So at least a few months to try to get more details on who the black victims were. Everybody, really, but particularly black victims uh, in the Virginia shooting. That might be worthwhile. If you got any constructive details you would like to share, I would certainly be interested. Uh, First few folks who dialed in with a hand up. Our line should be open. Proceed. Hello, can I be heard? (laughs) Uh, Yes, ma'am. She waited until uh, the, the, the Toronto Raptors were in the finals for Drake to annoy the world to call in and say, oh, yes, now I want to represent for Toronto and give my counter-racist views as we're about to take our glory and win the basketball championship. Be in Toronto. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. We can hear you live. Hi, Gus. How are you? Hi, Poorly. Yes, yes, I understand. Um, With uh, the system of white supremacy still being a major problem, but I think I have some solutions around this. Um, In fact, I was reading a book. um, It's called The Gentle Art of Verbal Self-Defense at Work. And um, I know that on your show, you do speak about um, understanding terminology and using um, uh, uh, terminology effectively. I also wanted to add um, that the use of body language and how body language is conveyed is also um, something that's going to be crucial as well. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is I actually had a demonstration of that yesterday. Um, Yesterday I was uh, on a visit um, with a colleague of mine who is a white female and um, while we were speaking with an applicant, um, she would occasionally turn to me while she's speaking. So her her intonation, her voice intonation uh, was, was calm right through. Um, and uh, she would occasionally um, be laughing and smiling. 
but when she turned to me, um, because she, she, she would voice her frustration with the applicant that we were speaking with, and the applicant was sitting right beside her, understands English, and I, like, it just baffled me. I, I couldn't understand how the person wasn't able to, to latch on to what she was actually doing. Um, she even used a profanity um, during that time, so um, it, it was it was uh, it was a it was an interesting lesson. So this is what I read from the book. Here it says that uh, we human beings want to believe that if we say the right words, we've done all that we can reasonably uh, expected of us. Never mind how much this sounds like the standard party line for primitive magic. Just get your incantations right and they'll always work. We still want to believe it because we know that it's relatively easy to improve our words. Um, however, the support... Um, sorry, let me just go back here. Uh, the support given to those words um, is needed by body language, um, including tone of voice and intonation, making them more powerful than they would be otherwise. The meaning conveyed by your body language is much more powerful than the meaning conveyed by your words. So in other words, while we're being distracted by um, what appears to be a calm demeanor, calm intonation um, of the voice, the word, somehow our minds are not really capturing the message of what's really being said. And by reading this book, it helped me make the connection as to why um, when the applicant was actually sitting beside her and she actually made a profanity about the applicant to me while laughing and smiling that he didn't um, recognize as such. I mean, if, if she had changed her intonation, if it looked a little more... Um, uh, congruent, then he would have been able to pick up. So I also recognize that this strategy um, was an effective use of deception as well. Um, so just to keep that in mind. Um, the other thing that I had noticed too is to always be aware of proximity and, and um, your, your space. Um, uh, I know that this has been mentioned before, especially in the work environment. So I'm sure that neutralizing workplace racism has, uh, this topic has come up. Um, but another thing I've observed is um, if to increase surveillance, they, they do what I have now termed as the boxing in method, where they have um, a white colleague, like literally around you, as if you're surrounded. Um, so if you have an opportunity where a desk is not actually assigned to you, you have that opportunity to, what I would suggest is to start moving around if you can, um, to, to, to break that boxed in, um, setup. Uh, also, I wanted to add, um, uh, because I know that there was a piece about um, Sutton, Ontario. I'm very familiar with the York region as well as I'm familiar with the Durham region. Um, Sutton, Ontario used to be a sundown town. 
um, uh, as well as many other um, suburbs um, out of the uh, around the greater Toronto area. Um, so yes, I, I just wanted to add that racism is well, racism is everywhere, and it's it's not surprising that it's there. There's um, very few black people um, living outside of Toronto, um, and this is hence the reason it, it's it's like a how can I say it's it's like a a reservation within the city. Um, because that's where most of the um, the black population is in Ontario. Um, it's very rare that you'll see a black family outside of Toronto because of the racism and because a lot of those um, places were sundown towns. Um, so, you know, if they ever wanted to do, say, a lockdown, it would be quite easy to do so. Just shut down the highways and you're basically locked in the city, um, which is um, very strategic uh, on the white supremacist part. So I also wanted to add that in. Thank you very much. I'll leave the line. Much obliged to be in Toronto. Uh, thank you so much for uh, the book. I was flipping through to see if I could find it. Uh, the Gentle Art of Verbal Self-Defense at Work, uh, because it's similar to uh, some other titles that we dealt with with books. Uh, but I just flipped through and was looking at the content section uh, to see what some of the chapters are like. Oh, this looks like something that uh, I should read or maybe we should read on the book club for the cows. And I scroll all the way down. Uh, they have a whole section on language. Uh, I keep scrolling down. And they have, oh, there it is, chapter nine, metaphors, a brief review. And they have a whole section that just deals with metaphors. But it looks like a lot of this book is, is just about using words and being mindful. It has a whole chapter on lying in the workplace. Like This looks extremely uh, constructive uh, for folks' workplace racism. The author is Suzette Hayden Elgin. The title again, The Gentle Art of Verbal Self-Defense at Work. Much obliged for the book suggestion. Be in Toronto reading more important than watching television. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have comments you would like to share, the line should be open. Proceed. Hello, ma'am. Be heard. Uh, greetings, Irie in Louisiana. Greetings, Irene. Are you there? Not hearing you? Hello. Oh, okay. I can hear you now. Hello. Oopsie daisy. Um, salutations, everyone in Gus. I'm going to make this short. Uh, I can't watch the uh, um, uh, movie about the Central Park Five. I, I literally felt the blood pressure in my eyes uh, increasing when I was watching the trailer with someone and had to leave out of the room. It made me uh, physically ill um, for a brief moment in time. So um, I suppose there's supposed to be a constructive value on the part of Mr. Vernay creating the film. But for me, I feel as though it is programming for people who classify themselves as white 
to say, yes, this is what we do. Um, black people are falsely accused all the time of crimes. We incarcerate them for uh, major periods of time. And then we call ourselves giving them some type of um, recompense by paying them for things that can't be restored, such as their life and their time and, and the trauma that they've um, incurred. I think what would be most constructive if there was a movie about all the times that um, people classify themselves as white were uh, penalized um, when they falsely accused people and what their lives were as a result. I think that would be uh, better messaging in the motion picture or entertainment activity um, if if there's a serious effort to um, end racism, white supremacy. Um, I do recall also blood chokes being mentioned in my time in the military, um, and they they called them blood chokes and not the lateral vascular um, hold or restraint because um, they made an inference that uh, that particular uh, hold will kill, um, as it has Mr. Garner, and I want to say rest in peace to um, Erica Garner um, as well. Um, and then the next thing is um, in an attempt to um, self-soothe and and, and um, deal with racism as best I can and also help other people um, deal with it as best as they can. I, I'm starting a series with a woman who is not white, she's black, and she uh, has... Uh, vast information on the comedic gods and goddesses. Um, and some people here may know or some of those uh, deities. I'm learning about them, um, just learning about it myself. It's highly interesting. Um, for instance, um, there's a, a goddess called Bastet, which is a black cat. And this uh, deity, this goddess is known to be the destructor, the destructor of chaos. So I found that interesting because all my life coming up, it was like black, black cats are bad luck, black, black, you know. And I'm like, how interesting is that? You know, we've been taught that it's bad luck when it's actually <laughs> quite the opposite. And I'm considering myself a student of this lady, but also, um, you know, just trying to help others as I learn. So we came together with um, a series where she's teaching Again, uh, this knowledge on uh, ancient knowledge from uh, Kemet, and I have an introductory um, series on how to counter racism, you know, minimizing contact with the guidance of Mr. Fuller's books, and also, you know, Dr. Amos, Dr. Francis Cresswell, and rest in peace to both of them, and um, other historical literature that I read along the way, because I do read a lot of anthropology and, and history and American um antebellum America. And so it's helping me deal with it in a more objective way, even though I still, again, get emotionally disturbed by what I see in here. Um, and thank you to the previous caller about um, that book. I, I also read a book on body language. It's called um, I Can Read You Like a Book. So that may be something other people want to pick up along with that as well. Um, they understand us more than we understand ourselves. They know, uh, you know, our physical reactions and facial reactions and, you know, it's important that we understand it uh, as well as they do, too, so we can uh, better control ourselves, our minds and our bodies. And I'll mute my line. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, Gus.
Thank you, Irie. Congratulations on your <clears throat> new series. Uh, we need more victims of racism not being spectators. Get out and put that counter-racist information to use. Uh, other folks who dialed in, uh, star 61, if you have commentary to share. Uh, if you have a hand up, proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, retired firefighter. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings, uh, everyone. Uh, I'll just start off. Uh, South Florida, uh, quite a few tragic things that has happened uh, in this area. Uh, I'll start off with... Uh, uh, one in which uh, three, well, let's I'll start off with, with two black males, ages five and six, uh, biological brothers uh, who drowned uh, in the uh, pool, swimming pool, that's in the uh, apartment complex where they reside. Uh, uh, there's a reasoning on why I'm mentioning this particular situation is because uh, one of the reasons why non-white black people uh, in this part of the world don't have a high level of swimming ability is due to the global system of racism and white supremacy. Uh, I, hear, I hear talking in the background. Do you hear it, Gus? Uh, I don't hear anything now. Okay, I don't either. Okay, continuing on. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, due to, uh, as we were discussing in Sundown Town on how the racist material, in a material, uh, military-like way, remove uh, non-white black people away from uh, seashores, uh, in close proximity to, uh, other water resources. And in turn, it, uh, retards the, uh, ability, uh, to have interest in the water, uh, as well as, uh, recreational activities that you can, uh, uh, attach yourself with. Uh, we, uh, I, from that idea, I thought it would be a good idea to uh, uh, try to incorporate into the DCS program. Uh, I would say every other session, uh, a swimming class for uh, the fellows. Uh, we have a large group, uh, so it has to be uh, uh, sanctioned to whereas a correct amount of of, of uh, instructors would be able to supervise the entire group. Uh, I know knew a guy personally, a uh, former co co-worker for Dade County Fire Department that taught my son how to swim. 
Uh, he's an excellent teacher, a uh, very patient person, very calm person. And uh, I'm pretty sure after we make the arrangements that he'll get the job done uh, pretty well. Uh, we have uh, children as young as seven years old, uh, boys especially, uh, because of their uh, aggressive and energetic uh, behavior, uh, it can get to a situation to where, as you know, children in, in general are interested in water uh, that may not be afraid of it uh, until they uh, get to a point where the water's over their head and they have the inability to uh, remain on the surface of the water. Uh, also, uh, another tragic event took place where three black males were killed uh, due to a car slamming into them. Uh, there is some a nutty person that it says uh, sobriety is best. The driver of the vehicle, uh, this happened about 5 o'clock in the morning, uh, was inebriated and slammed into these three uh, non-white black males, ages uh, range from 15 to 13, I believe. All three of them reportedly were destined to be the first uh, members of their families to go to college. Uh, it was reported. Uh, uh, the person who did it was drunk driving. Uh, uh, so therefore, you know, if you state over and over again, sobriety is uh, the best choice to make. Uh, and also uh, non-aggressive driving, too, on top of it. Um, yes, uh, as far as, well, I mentioned about the oh, uh, DC, DCS program uh, we met today also. And as I mentioned before, we, I made arrangements with, uh, with uh, uh, Mr. Reddick on... Uh, getting the swimming lessons in and uh that's uh yeah it's just about it for for the for today as far as uh the week is concerned uh that's all i have to say for, all i have to say for right now thank you much obliged <clears throat> sobriety would be best i think i might have heard that once or twice uh those vehicle accidents cause a lot of problems for non-white people worldwide. Uh, condolences uh, to those who lost their life. Those swimming deaths, uh, we talked about that a lot as well. Uh, there's a lot of information on that as well with black children uh, just not getting the same type of safe uh, access to swimming areas. I think that's in uh, Richard Williams' book as well. Uh, he talked about that where you would have a lot of black children every summer uh, who would end up dying from those unsafe uh, swimming conditions uh, throughout the system of racism. So another problem to be mindful of. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Other uh, folks who dialed in that we have missed thus far, uh, if you have a hand up, proceed. Bobby Hurt. Greetings, Thomas in New York. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to firefighter and all other callers. Um, as you know, Gus, I got your back. And I had a few um, things I wanted to report on. Um, ironically, this week um, in London, 
um, worker who blackened up as Mitchell said the racism. Um, this guy came to work in, in the Christmas party in um, blackface, and um, they brought him to court for racism. And he was clear. Um, I put Coon in when I saw that article. Uh, that article was in, um, I'm sorry, it, it was in thetimes.co.uk. Uh, but I thought that very interesting to clear the racism. So it really didn't matter anyway that he got his job back. Um, also in the UK, I thought this was interesting. Um, spoken blackface, I guess you could call this reverse blackface. Um, I, I'm, I guess that's, I, I don't want to use a metaphor. But, um, children whitening skin to avoid racism as hate crimes against minors rise. Um, children as young as ten or um, as young as ten are whitening their faces to avoid being subjugated to racist abuse in Britain. A child protection group has warned as police struggle to stem a rising tide of hate against children. Um, a total of ten thousand five hundred and seventy one racially motivated hate crimes against children, an average of twenty nine per day, were recorded by police. Um, between a uh, 12-month period of 2017 and 2018. Um, and I thought that that was very interesting because uh, I said, well, maybe this is happening to, um, they say, against race. Maybe it's happening to Muslims. But, um, no, they have a whole other category for religion, um, another category for um, LGBT. Um, so it wasn't Arabs, it wasn't Muslims, it wasn't Jews. This is particularly black people in the UK. Um, and then at um, a total of 71,251 uh, were recorded between England and Wales uh, in between that 12-month period. Um, and I thought that was very interesting because we see the same spike um, over since after 2016 here in uh, racist crimes against black people. Um, and um, um, now I watched this um, docu-series, Gus, a four-part docu-series on um, the Wu-Tang Clan, a rap group um, from New York City, came on Showtime. Um, the racism was embedded in the story. Um, I was just watching it because I was a fan growing up um, in high school. They were like one of the biggest groups. Um, I went to a few of their concerts. And um, they were talking about Staten Island in the early 80s going to school. And um, Staten Island is, doesn't have a lot of black people um, as opposed to the other boroughs. Um, however, Staten Island is, is pretty big. It's larger than the city of Atlanta. I mean, it's not a small place, but not a lot of black people. Um, they said that um, people in their 30s, white, white men in their 30s, would chase them home from school and they were 9 and 10 years old. I mean, um, I thought it was very interesting. I said, man, Gus can make a bunch of sound clips just out of this one little segment. Um, but that, I guess that's, what, fourth and fifth grade? And they were running home from school because they lived in the projects, and um, they had to walk through this um, all-Italian white area to get to school. So in the morning, um, I guess they got to school pretty safely, but coming home, they had to plot how they were going to get home every day. Um, I listened to the clip on the Ghetto Boys, 
Um, and, you know, just a different perspective, looking back in hindsight, <clears throat> my, um, the mind playing tricks on your song. Um, Ghetto Boys from the Fifth Ward of Houston um, had artist was Mr. Scarface. Um, and I was a fan. I had the tape. I bought it because of that song. And I had um, Scarface albums. And um, I, I wouldn't consider them the first emotional rappers. You know, I would say you know, Slick Rick or LL probably. But um, in the interview, uh, I think it would have took a whole different perspective or a whole different direction, rather, if they would have played the actual song, um, played the non-edited version of the song, um, because they were rapping about the stress and paranoia from being drug dealers. Um, and I'm listening to the song play, and I'm like, oh, man, they're playing the video version, you know, but... I mean, four walls, just staring at a nigga. I'm paranoid, sleeping with my finger on the trigger. You know, um, the other verse with my man Willie D. Um, you know, um, is it the fool that I ran off the block? Or is it the nigga last week that I shot? Or is it the one I beat for $5,000, thought he had came? But it was gold medal flower. You know, laughing about cheating people and shooting people, black people. Um, I mean, I would be paranoid too, you know, um, but I think that this was um, looking back in hindsight, just uh, one of many songs that glorified a lifestyle that landed millions of our people in behind prison bars and in an early grave. Um, and I don't think a lot of this stuff was constructive. Um, I don't think a lot of the music today is constructive, but we're not killing each other um, in every song. Um, the Young Turks clip, and this is the last thing I was going to add, um, whites get off hearing and talking about all the powers, they call it privileges, that they have. Um, but they, the one thing they love doing more than that is to talk about all the abuse that black people take. I mean, he was like, my favorite story was, you know, the one who was, you know, I mean, it was like, you know, how's that your favorite story? Like, it was the best part, you know, if he was happy to see it. And um, I, I hate when they do that. I find that a trend of white people. They love to talk about um, the abuse that they give to us and that we ain't act on each other as a result of what they do to us. And I have more to add later, but I'll meet myself, Dustin. There was a question for you that was raised in workplace res uh, racism yesterday, Thomas in New York, uh, Stacy in the UK. She asked, uh, you told us about your previous place of employment, workplace racism, Fridays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. She asked, um, you told us about the situation where they accused you of stealing the produce funds, uh, embezzling the produce funds. Uh, she said, uh, hindsight, given what you know now. Uh, would you have done anything differently knowing what you know now uh, and how you dealt with purchasing the fruit or handling that money, anything in, in that process is anything you would have done differently that you think may have uh, helped protect you from the racists at your former job? Man, um, contemplating on it. Um, it I was put in a situation where I could have went to the supermarket and got a receipt, which was my initial plan, 
but I was told to go to the food stand with a guy, so just a non-English-speaking guy who sells food. So I'll, I'm pretty much in a position where I can't fool it. You know what I'm saying? I can only fool what I buy from the supermarket, which is certain items that they want. But everything else I'm supposed to get from this other guy, and he has no way of, you know. So in that respect, um, no, uh, as far as um, the, the guy who I worked with, you know, looking back at hindsight, I would have um, treated him much differently because, um, you know, I, I, you know, I just, you know, I, I probably would have um, looked at him much more suspiciously. Um, but that's about it, though. Uh, and I'm, it's one of those things that it was terrible for the week, for a week, and it got much, much better, you know, to me. I'm in a much better situation as far as um, stress, dealing with stress. You know, most of the people that work at this place I work at, uh, it's a lot of white people, of course, but it's a lot of non-white people, too. They're just not black, you know what I'm saying? So uh, I'm not alone, but I'm alone, you know what I'm saying? Um, I make myself best thinking. And I did have more to add earlier. I'm later on that. Oh, okay. Much obliged. I'm sure Stacey uh, appreciates that in the UK. Uh, any other folks who uh, dialed in that we've missed totally, if you have a comment to share. Um, if we've missed you totally, proceed. Folks who dialed in with a hand up that we missed totally. Hello, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Awesome. Uh, yeah, this is uh, Ken Steele. I'm calling from Los Angeles. And uh, I, I got a few things to report. Um, earlier this week, um, I saw something pretty interesting. Um, there was some sort of event going on held at some local uh, store um, by some streamer named Adam22. Uh, and he runs some podcast or uh, a web broadcast um, that's primarily aimed towards uh, younger um, listeners of rap music. And uh, I'm not I'm not young at all. Well, I guess some people would consider me young, but I don't think I'm like young in a in a hip hop sense. I'm not like 16 or anything like that. So I'm pretty at this point in my life uh, far removed from. Um, what they, I guess, what would be called hip hop culture, um, I guess, contemporary hip hop culture, um, on like, uh, as what kids are listening to. And one thing I noticed uh, about the crowd that was gathered there was that, uh, something that it seemed like a consistent theme was there was a lot of Mexicans that were using the N word, um, they they were they were saying uh, and I use the N word. I just I, I really don't feel comfortable uh, saying it when it's not necessary to be said. I think everybody understands what I'm uh, what I'm referring to. But yeah, they just seemed alarmingly uh, cool about using the N word um, in colloquial speech and in in raps. And most of the freestyling that I heard that day was pretty embarrassing. Uh, considering um, all of the 
uh, bad remarks I hear about uh, black people and their freestyling. I, I heard a lot of white and Mexican freestylers, and it was just um, not impressive at all. Um, and then uh, another thing that I wanted to touch on is, um, you know, the facts uh, surrounding the recent shooting in Virginia, um, they seem to be hard to come by, uh, and they seem to be very deliberate in the way that they're disseminating this information. Uh, for example, um, when uh, these shooters turn out to be white, I noticed that uh, if there is any sort of military service that they have, they're quick to um, be able to give you a full breakdown on their military service, and they'll even go ahead and give you diagnoses that they may have been they may have received at the VA. Um, a lot of these uh, people are a lot of these mass shooters are often referred to as having PTSD whenever they have. Uh, uh, military service history. This person apparently was a military, uh, an army reservist. And uh, I was looking up information. They weren't able to uh, say if he was honorably or dishonorably discharged. I, you know, I'm, I'm finding it hard to believe that the news would have trouble finding that information about this particular shooter. And then another thing that uh, was interesting was that, uh, to me, was that this shooter was recently fired from his job. And uh, after listening to so many workplace racisms and, you know, my own experiences in the workplace, I'm not saying that I would go ahead and gun down my, my uh, old coworkers and everything like that, but I can definitely understand how the treatment uh, one would receive at one of these jobs uh, could result in um, somebody taking uh, rather extreme and violent action, um, especially after a long and protracted firing period. Because anybody who listens to workplace racism knows that uh, when you are let go from one of these jobs, it's usually a very long, drawn out, and uh, um, sometimes physically painful uh, in the form of stress um, process. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm eager to hear more information about this shooting um, as it comes forward. If anybody has any more information about it, uh, you know, or um, any sort of uh, um, accounts, that would be um, very interesting. Also, uh, you know, the news has been, uh, the way that they've been reporting this, um, it's very peculiar to me. Um, they seem to be taking steps to uh, try to minimize um, the shooter. For instance, the photo that they used, they, I don't think that they were able to find a mugshot, and I don't think that they were able to find anything that looks incriminating in his past. So what, they did, what I've been noticing is that they're actually posting his high school photo in which he looks, uh, he looks like... Um, uh, well, he looks very similar, sorry, he looks very similar to um, the appearance that uh, um, Steve Urkel used to have. And I think that that is, you know, very deliberate in the way that they're presenting this person because they're so limited. It seems that there's a very limited um, amount of information that they're able to um, get on him. And it seems that all the information would suggest that he's an upstanding member of society, or he was an upstanding member of society prior to this attack. 
So, uh, I, you know, I'm just very, very curious to hear any more information. If anybody has any more details, uh, that would be great. Um, I'll go ahead and uh, mute my line at this time. Thank you. From the high school photograph that you've seen, uh, do you think this is someone classified as white? Oh, absolutely not. This is a black guy. Oh, okay. um, the shooter is definitely, no, no, the shooter is definitely black. Okay. The shooter is definitely black, and uh, and uh, of the victims, I think three of them um, could be classified as black as well. There, there could one of them could m- might not be black. I don't know. It might just be the the photo that they selected was not brightened. So I see. I don't know. The report that I saw, I, I would agree, Mr. Steele. Um, in terms of information now, certainly this happened yesterday. So I suspect by the time we do the compensatory call in next Saturday, there should be a lot more information about this event. You know, they generally might say in the first 24 hours, sometimes information is not the best. Uh, but the reports that I've seen, I've yet to see even that photograph that you talked about, the high school photograph, the written reports that I've seen, Washington, uh, the Washington Post uh, and some even Virginia outlets, uh, they did not have a photograph of the alleged shooter, uh, Dwayne Craddock. They uh, did have photographs of the victims at the Washington Post. And I saw the same thing that it looked like about three of the victims looked like they would be classified as black. Um, everybody. Can else... I interject real quick? Yeah, let's hear it. Real quick. Uh, uh, yeah. Um... You know, it was very interesting when they did uh, uh, the way that they are releasing this, uh, the information related to this report. Um, this is the most codified I have seen the news um, react to a shooting by not using the shooter's name. I've heard, you know, uh, reporters on a number that I can't count um, say something to the effect of we won't be saying his name or we won't be releasing the, name, the shooter's name after this broadcast. And then uh, there's a deliberate attempt to um, not show his picture. And, and I just mentioned the only picture that I see that the news is really running with is his uh, high school photo. Now, I've seen um, more recent photos of him. And, uh, you know, honestly, you know, there he... he looks like a looks like an upstanding dude to me other than the fact that he allegedly you know took out 11 people but um yeah it, it there isn't any photograph that would be incriminating i'm sure if he had a mug shot on file they would just be uh running that nonstop, and they would be talking about his past transgressions and i think even in the news report that i read they were going into his family history and they 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 didn't find any bad information there, um, but they were they had very specific information about um, his mother and her recent travel plans, and that was just all very peculiar to me. The only the only time I can re- recall somebody's relatives or next of kin um, and their travel plans being reported was during the Las Vegas shooting, where they reported that the uh, shooter's girlfriend was uh, visiting, I believe, uh, the Philippines or some other place in Asia at the time of the shooting. So I'll go ahead and mute my line. Much obliged, 
uh, other folks if you have any additional information on the shooting in VA uh, or other thoughts, any of the audio clips that we've heard this evening uh, that you would like to share. Uh, Line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings, caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. I wanted to um, put some focus on the use of words. Uh, but first, the the panda segment, I think, on the albino affairs, I think uh, that's also very interesting that I believe they said they uh, got more infrared cameras or they had them functioning more frequently, I guess, just to keep, uh, I guess, to put attention on to the uh, creature, the uh, melanin deficient or the all-white panda bear. And I guess, because I, I did remember seeing a segment on it earlier in the week where I guess it hadn't been a, uh, a birth of a albino panda and they said it was red eyed and everything but i'm glad that you have that audio segment before the story that plays because they do put greater emphasis on a life form that's uh that's uh not melanated and uh that has albinism um the next couple of things are the uh the words that i've noticed that were used uh there was a new segment about the what they were using they were using the word cheating scandal and now it's changed to college admissions scandal so they took the term cheating out and that was just one uh example that i noticed and uh there was a term that was used in the audio segment about the officer i think the black male was Josiah Hunter, I believe, and they said the officer had a spotty. I think they mean S-P-O-T-T-Y. Had a spotty history or a spotty record. That could be another term, too, where it's like, um, I know I'm using the word light as though I'm about to mention a metaphor, but terms like uh, stain and things like that sounds like it's going on that pattern where something of dark color is unfavorable or something uh, negative and bad. And on the segment with the young Turks, they kept using the term KKK because of the people were calling the police or whatever. And it was saying, Oh, well, you know, they're not KKK just because, just because you call them the police, I don't think that I'm KKK because I'm calling the police. No, nah, it's just a misunderstanding kind of going on to the example of the uh, focal pointed racist that you only have to be in that example. If you're outside of that example, then it's, it's not all white people don't think that every white person is a suspected racist. And the, the Walt Whitman, like I thought about that last name, it almost sounds like it's a white man, the last name, but the term wit, like intelligence or something of the mind, wits. It seems, I don't know the uh, etymology of the last name, but like white plus wit, uh, Whitman. I don't know if anyone noticed that. 
but that was something I was thinking of. Um, and one last thing about words was there was a, a segment also on the news where a black couple, I guess, were on the way to uh, the hospital to deliver a baby. And the term they used to introduce the segment was beautiful nightmare. So I don't know what that means, really. Uh, but it, it had to do with the, a black child being born. So interesting term that they used on that. And one last term I heard actually on the audio segment was cancellation culture, cancellation culture. I guess it has something to do with the statues and things named after uh, people who support the system of white supremacy. And that's all I have for now. Thanks for allowing me to share. Much obliged caller in Florida. Important point uh, about wit. I think whites do use that term regularly. Uh, using your wit, your intelligence, uh, as well as white man. I thought that all throughout the series of Breaking Bad, uh, Walter White, well, it's explicit there, Walter White. And then he loves Walt Whitman. Uh, the cancellation, I thought, was important as well. Uh, them even using such a term uh, as that. Absolutely. Um, other folks who dialed in, I'll give out the number again. 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Hello, um, Gus, may I reply to him real quick about the um, term cancellation? Let's hear it. Um, I don't know if it was just me, but I, I also felt like the um, the reporter was almost in a way um, jeering at that. Like, yeah, we, there's a cancellation, quote-unquote, culture, but you know, it seemed like it, it was something funny to her, like, oh, it really doesn't matter anyway. Um, did did anyone, did you pick that up or did you pick that up, caller in Florida? Caller in Florida? I'm sorry, what, what was the question again? It sounded like she was, um, like, making fun of it, even though she referenced it. It sounded like it... The, what I heard in the voice was almost like light jeering at it, like, oh, you know, there's cancel culture now, you know, but like in the back of her mind, it almost was like it doesn't really matter anyway, because with, I don't know. It could be me. I think it, it's also terms along with that uh, words like, I think is it called political correctness? I think that term has come up as well where they'll use that to see where a victim of racism, how they will respond to it and see if they'll question it. Cause they might have a definition if the, uh, the person might've asked it because I don't know who used the term first. Uh, was, was that term used multiple times in that segment or was it just once the term cancellation cancellation culture about the, uh, I think about the, the monuments and the statues and the people are the names that been applied to statues and whatnot and buildings. I think I heard it at least a couple times. Um, 
I heard it at least. Yeah, it was used more than once. I think in the in the segment. Oh, okay, okay. Because that, that's the first time I caught on to it was toward the end, and I thought he had introduced it. I have to go back and hear it again. But uh, I wanted to know what the definition of that was myself personally. That is the Thanks. first. I'm sorry, uh, Irene. I was just saying thank you. That's the first time that I've heard it used. I was curious about a definition myself. Uh, other folks, if you have uh, questions, suggestions, comments you want to share, line should be open. May I be heard? Greetings, Red in Nevada. She reminded me, I think uh, Red is a former victim of Cheetos. She can set me right if I'm wrong. Uh, we did that program with Dr. Lathan on Wednesday. We talked about Cheetos. We talked about food, healthy diet, why it's so important to be mindful about what we put in our mouth. Truth. We wrap up the program. Non-white housemate quietly downstairs didn't disturb while we're doing the program i walk downstairs i kid you not they are watching television with a bag of cheetos on the table i cracked up laughing and some of them have listened to the program have heard he had his pal over there i think the game was that that was thursday they were watching that they were watching drake and toronto in the finals with a bag of cheetos what could be better? that's what Probably you had millions of people doing the exact same thing. Cheetos watching the finals. That is the power. That is exactly what I said. That is another day where I chalk up a L. I couldn't even get the people in my own residence to not eat Cheetos. That is the power of racism, white supremacy, and the power of those addictives, the addictives in the Cheetos. Frito-Lay wins again. Thank you for your patience, Red in Nevada. Hello. Um, hello, everyone. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, um, used to love Cheetos and even dipping them in ranch, just horrible stuff. Um, but uh, just a few things, not really too many things on the clips besides the fact that um, I always have to refresh my memory when it comes to Walt Whitman. I don't really ever uh, remember reading anything about him. I do remember reading, um, having to read stuff about like Mark Twain. But even when I was looking up different things about Walt Whitman and racism, it was basically the same thing, um, like was mentioned in the clip, where they would talk about, in the articles, they would talk about so many other things. And then finally, once you get towards the last, sometimes half or even third part of the article, that's when it will finally say, oh, well, he might have called black people baboons, or he might have had a different view on slavery um, after, or black people after, uh, post-Civil War. Uh, there was even a few articles where it was referenced him as being queer because of something that he wrote about having some type of same-sex community or something like that. Uh, just thought that that was interesting. Also with the, um, with the Virginia Beach shooter, I haven't really heard too much about him either and all I do um, all I was able to actually look up as far as pictures 
was there was the the high school one and then there's like a black and white one that's like just a close-up of his face but really nothing else and um, I have been watching some documentaries and uh, there was one about the there was one about a serial killer and he definitely reminded me of Jeffrey Dahmer except for the cannibalism they did mention in the documentary where he was only going after black males uh, primarily because he killed I think about 23 or 30 people and this was in Louisiana so he killed them I think within like a five five to ten year period and he also killed a few people even after um, Hurricane Katrina but just the different deceptive ways of how he would get the victims and they even said that some of the victims they weren't even homosexual and this white man this racist actually was but I thought it was interesting how uh, the the families some of the families they were able to like uh, speak on the documentary and one family said that this one white man had killed five different people within their family so either a cousin a brother a son or what have you but nowhere did they mention him as having like a hate crime when they specifically said if he couldn't find a, a black male then that's when he would um, just go ahead and get a white man the other thing that um, the other uh, documentary that I had watched was about uh, Anthony Sowell and he was the black male serial killer in Cleveland, Ohio, and he was the one who had murdered 11 black females, and it kind of, and just with the documentary, it was definitely, um, it didn't necessarily specifically speak about the racism because they, the, the, as far as like the racism where that would be involved in the documentary is the fact that there were different family members reporting the black females as being missing and they literally just didn't the, the police department didn't do anything but the main thing that um, made me think about the documentary is I was actually looking on Facebook and on the cows Facebook page and I saw there was a receipt that said it was blurred out but I guess the name on the receipt was supposed to be nigger or nigger or something like that and how um, the post was saying well, you know this is why we should not be eating out and whatever but in the documentary, which I've never seen before, now the black victims, they were, if I'm not mistaken, most, if not all, were addicted to drugs. And they had, the doc in the documentary, they had one of the corner store owners, I don't know if he would be considered white, but he was from, quote unquote, Middle East. And he was actually allowed to say he wished that there was more Anthony Sorwells. So that way he would be, because Anthony Sorwell cleaned out the trash, which I thought was, was interesting because it was, the documentary was produced by a white woman. And with all the different things that I've seen, even on white women who were prostitutes, things like that, there was no one interviewed who was able to say something as despicable as what that, that individual said. So um, I'll meet my line. Thank you. Much obliged, red in Nevada, white women, integral component of the system of white supremacy, no doubt. 
Uh, other folks that we missed totally have commentary they would like to share. We have less than 30 minutes left in the broadcast. If you think you would like to participate, uh, folks left that we have not heard from at all. While folks are waiting to get their final thoughts together, Thomas in New York, I know you said you had additional comments you had to wanted to share. Uh, do you want to go ahead and get your thoughts in while folks are waiting to get whatever other suggestions, comments they wanted to offer? For sure, for sure, guys. So, um, you know, um, once, what article I forgot to say, um, um, this came from WBUR. Is systemic racism a public health crisis? The Walkie says yes. So the Walkie is saying now that racism that they're enacting on the black people is a public health crisis. So I'm very interested to see how they're going to go and tackle this public health crisis. Um, I'm looking to that. Um, what I wanted to talk about was um, this was in the Tribune, the Express Tribune, on Wednesday, May 29th. Samsung's new AI technology and create a video of anyone with a single picture. Um, one single picture of you, it can make a video uh, with you moving your mouth, um, saying things uh, with the voice recognition technology or sound just like you. Uh, like, like now they can store up to 200 words um, in your voice that they can um, pretty much they say that's the vernacular of people. They could have a whole conversation with that. So um, they use the Mona Lisa um, as a test subject, and they actually have the Mona Lisa moving and uh, moving her mouth and um, talking. And um, very interesting technology, especially since um, we know how this is used against us as black people. Um, another article that came out, something very similar, um, and um, it's from the big picture. Uh, one of these models don't exist. So they have a picture of three people, I'm in a picture, three women um, in like uh, one of those makeup model shoots. And one of the three women are a computer-generated image. And it looks so real, you probably wouldn't be able to figure out which one of these um, are not the real person. And uh, a lot of the images that we're seeing online and some of these computer-generated um, type of things, it's not even a real person. I, I didn't even realize this. These are computer-generated images of someone um, in a Maybelline or a Revlon um, shoot that you see on Proper Course YouTube or whatever. Uh, and I thought that was interesting as well. Um, my wife graduated on Thursday from um, Lehman University in the Bronx. And um, she's a, uh, I was very proud of her. I went to the graduation. And... Um, um, it was a, a very, you know, nice ceremony. Um, I one thing that I did notice in my observation was it was a class of 3,600 people, uh, which was a pretty big class um, through all the different arts and sciences. It made up 3,600 people, and um, quite a large amount of people that would be classified as black. Um, and afterwards, they had a little. You know, everyone can stay on the campus. They serve food and, you know, ice cream and things of that nature. And um, uh, what I noticed was 
hardly none of the blacks would be classified as American blacks, you know, and it was just very odd. Um, and I mute myself, Gus, thank you. Congratulations uh, to your wife. Reading is more important than watching television. I'm sure she had to do some reading to pull off that academic uh, accomplishment. Uh, and I'm not surprised that you saw a uh, lack of darker folks that tends to be uh, not by accident, uh, but by deliberate planning, deliberate racist planning. Uh, any other folks? No, guys, they were... They were darker folks. They just wasn't Americans. Um, oh, okay. You know, they, they were, yeah, just wasn't, you know, black people that's from, um, you know, descendants of um colonial system that was put in place here. Gotcha. Not born in this part of the world. That I think other folks have noted that trend uh, as well. That was that's in Sundown Towns too. Uh, he talked about that that they would have black people that were born from someplace on the continent or what have you, but they would not dare have a black person that was born in Indiana or Michigan uh, come to the school. Uh, other folks, uh, we miss any folks have additional comments, uh, suggestions that they wanted to share. Can I um add one thing? Red in Nevada. Um, there's been something that I've been kind of thinking about, and it's actually about the workplace. Um, from time to time, we'll have to do these procedures. And one of the procedures was about like an um, active shooter. And I just keep comparing that, I guess, training or procedures or manual or whatever, compared to some of the past plantations that I've been on. And basically, they suggest or they go over basically three options. Um, one was to like try to run or get away. The other one was to hide. And then there was one, basically the last option was to fight. And I keep trying to think about, um, or keep trying to, um, just remember like any other training that I had. And I don't ever remember like fighting being an option, but they don't also go into like, if you do so happen to fight, and if you are sued or something, because I, I, I've heard of like that happening, even when people, if someone like breaks into your house, if you don't mortally wound them, they may be able to sue you for whatever reason. Uh, but I just thought that that was um, interesting, those three options that they basically give uh, people on the plantation. And I'll meet my line. Thank you. Can I be heard? Uh, yes, sir, Mr. Steele. Uh, yes, uh, a couple of things. One, um, uh, as it relates to this shooter, um, I'm going to make a speculation that probably by this time next week, if they have not uh, completely, if the news media has not completely abandoned this story, um, they will... Uh, go and find out more and more into this person's background. And there were a few things that kind of, um, uh, that, well, I think they'll go into this person's background and they'll go and report that he was some sort of uh, what they're calling a red pill uh, person or somebody who, who subscribes to red pill ideology on the internet. And I, and I making this speculation because 
when they of the reports that I have read about this situation, there was reports about his political affiliation and his uh, online activity. There were some, uh, I guess, murmurs or um, brief mentions of this. However, the news reports that I read uh, said that the media is refraining from going into any more detail about these uh, political affiliations uh, pending investigation. And the way that they said that, uh, I don't think that he was, you know, necessarily affiliated with any sort of uh, what they call uh, black identity extremists. I, I don't, I don't think that. I think he may. This may be uh, a red pill thing because one thing really stuck out to me was that they didn't mention that this person had any sort of uh, romantic involvement with anybody or any sort of uh, um, any sort of partner. In fact, his neighbors remarked that. Uh, he never brought groceries home, and he kept odd hours. Those were the only, um, I guess, uh, strange things that they mentioned about him. So I think this may have, this may be a situation where it may be a, a guy who may have uh, um, been triggered to take this uh, route of action after um, protracted experiences of of not having any sort of uh, intimate relationships with anybody. I suspect that that may be the case, and they're going to say that he was either an incel or a, a red pill movement person. And also, very recently, this just happened uh, during the broadcast, but um, uh, non-white uh, black uh, boxer uh, Anthony Joshua uh, just lost to uh, um, a very rotund Mexican fellow um, in a boxing match, and uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm very disappointed at this result. Um, as a, a Nigerian or a person who whose family is from Nigeria, um, I'm embarrassed <laughs> by this by this outcome. And uh, and finally, uh, I was doing some reading on the internet, and some people were mentioning um, uh, my participation on this broadcast and. Um, some commenter mentioned that uh, they recall that I mentioned that I may have been married and have twins. Um, I don't, I'm not married. I do not have twins. I don't know where they got this information. I'm curious to know is if there have been uh, times where people have called in pretending to be me. I don't think that that could um, be the case because I think my number shows up when I dial through. So um, I'm just I'm wondering if, you know, this may be incorrect information that's out there or somebody might be calling in and imitating my voice. But no, I'm not married. I do not have uh, twins. Um, I'm not uh, uh, in, a, in a legally binding relationship with anybody. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, mute my line at this point. Hmm. How interesting. I seemed, or at least I get the impression you have a pretty distinct uh, voice, so I don't know. It might not be as easy for someone to call in to mimic you, but uh, I'll have to ponder on that. See if I even recall someone calling in to say that that's kind of a peculiar one. Twins, like I don't even remember offhand someone calling in to say that they had uh, twins per se. But uh, hmm. yeah, How somebody was calling. Somebody wrote about you know my past contributions to the program. And they were mentioning that I was very helpful 
but they they said that I was married and had twins, so that was that was very odd to me. Very odd to me. I do not have twins, and I'm not married. So I'll go ahead and mute my line. No, tw- heard. no twins, not married. Yes, ma'am, we can hear you. Um, I think it just could have been like an error. I remember there was a caller who did announce. I think it might have been someone from Missouri or Kansas or something like that. Um, maybe like an engineer in construction or like one of them had like a wife who was a yoga instructor. It was one of them who said that they had had twins. So it was just likely a mix up. I'll mute my line. Good memory, Red in Nevada. Do you remember if that person sounded like Mr. Steele or is that too much detail? No, I didn't. I don't think anyone sounds like Mr. Steele. Um, but thank you. That's what I thought. He has pretty distinct uh, timbre to his voice. Anywho, uh, other folks uh, dialed in. We have less than 10 minutes. Uh, any other folks have final questions, uh, comments that they wanted to share? Hello, Mabby Hurt. Uh, greetings, Irie. Um, thanks, Thomas, in New York, for that um, tech tech update. It reminds me I was talking to um, a white male. Well, he was talking to me. He was very um, happy to announce that um, Elon Musk has a program, Neuralink or something, that is planning to um, uh, interface the human brain and synapses of the brain with uh, computer um, capabilities with within the next, um, I believe, decade or so. Um, and looking, doing the quick uh, overview of it, they say it's for the treatment of diseases, but um, I don't think so. And I find that to be interesting. Um, you know, this uh, development in lieu with that facial recognition um, a technology that they're very, very adamant about developing and now hearing that they can just take a um, an image of a person's face and then create motion picture from it. Um, highly disturbing for me. It reminds me of, um, it's not exactly like the story, but it does remind me of um, um, Minority Report. Uh, and then also about the um, the killings in Louisiana and uh, I believe it was Cleveland, um, uh, there was not that much news about it down here. I do recall hearing a, a story on Democracy Now! about the gentleman, um, but not in, like, the local news or anything. And then the killings in Cleveland, it was um, reminiscent of um, the New York Police Department uh, having willful and wa- wa- uh, willful the wanton negligence, in my opinion, with the missing of a, um, a a student, a college student, Ramona Moore, her family, her mother went to them and told them, my my daughter is, you know, um, just a student. She doesn't go out. She only goes to school and she goes to work and she is dependable to be home by this time every day that she leaves. And they said, oh, well, she's 18 now. She's probably out getting high. Or she's probably, you know, having fun somewhere. And um, before too long, within the month or so of her going missing, they did find Ramona choked, I believe, and raped and dead in a um, basement in the Bronx. 
um, while simultaneously there was a young white woman that went missing at the same time. And they did like all points bulletin for her and had a band going around with a picture saying, have you seen this lady? So, um, yes, uh, very sad. I'm, I'm sad to hear that those women or remember that those women were on drugs. But, you know, like someone said a while back, they were responding to the system as best as they could. But, um, yeah. And which is another thing. It just um, makes makes me think of the Malia Davis situation and how they are giving so much attention to the incorrectness of the mother and the so-called boyfriend or um, ex-fiance or whatever it is and not focusing on finding the young woman as much as they are the, I suppose it's a metaphor, but the drama that is surrounding the um, disappearances. Wow. I'll mute my line. Thank you, everyone. Um, Have a good night. Thank you for sharing anything uh, to associate black people with drugs. Like, oh yeah, that's what, that's what they do. Of course, we shouldn't feel sorry for them or feel bad for them. If anything, you know, they should be admonished. Maybe we should arrest the arrest a parent or relative uh, for this criminal conduct. Uh, oh, uh, I guess last few minutes, quickly, the caller in Florida, uh, if you're still with us, sir, if someone were to say, you know, wait a second, sir, that was not white people who saw some importance to the albino panda. Those were non-white people in China who put up these cameras and said they were going to put up even more cameras uh, just because they thought this is an interesting scientific study. You don't see an all-white panda uh, every day. And these are not white people who are putting a value on this uh, albino creature's life. What would your response to that be? I would just ask, uh, can you show me any evidence of any other animal or creature getting this much surveillance and cameras and technology focused on it too? Something That's the first thing that came to my mind. Can they show me that? And then uh, the reports to coincide with it. Hmm. Let's see. They have zoos, you know. They have uh, lots of animals in zoos and and shelters and wildlife preserves for animals that are not uh, albinos. And also, can I be heard? Um, At at these zoos, they oftentimes have 24-hour cameras set up, especially when they're giving birth. Um, I I can recall several times that I've scrolled through my uh, Facebook news feed, and I've seen various animals sitting in some sort of pen, uh, and uh, the webcam is just streaming, waiting for them to um, begin um, the birthing process. So uh, there are other examples. I think a better question would be in a, in in order. And then especially when they get to mentioning the color of an animal, because like they mentioned the birth of a giraffe a few months ago, I believe, but they didn't mention the color of the eye or anything or any form of pigment on the uh, animal's body. Oh, so you've seen the giraffe one. I've seen the giraffe. I've seen baby rhinos. And I think I've seen gorillas as well being focused on um, with that surveillance. But when it comes to color, um, they do point out uh, abnormal colors 
in crustaceans. I do remember seeing a 10-minute report on a, on a crab that uh, was actually blue and a lobster that was actually blue. And I think that blue lobster actually is an albino lobster um, that just appears to be blue because of the biology of, of lobsters. So I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, because they seem to definitely put an emphasis on color, just like that's also a good point about the black rhino, white rhino. And they mentioned the uh, decrease in the population because of poachers, but they don't really going to say white people. They use general terms as to why the creature is decreasing in population amount. Mm-hmm. Okay, now that's an area that I have looked into a little bit. Actually, most of the people that they're calling poachers are black. However, the customers for what they are poaching are primarily white and Asian. Um, When it comes to some of these rare animals or some of these rare minerals that come from animals, including uh, mostly focusing on ivory, uh, tusks and then keratin uh, rhino uh, rhinoceros horns. Those are oftentimes purchased by customers from uh, from Asia, and uh, and the posters that you see in the United States um, that are advertised on our um, airwaves, they're oftentimes the case. They're financing some sort of conservation efforts. Now I know that this is a talking point that they do um, put out there, but. Uh, if you look at those nature preserves in these countries, oftentimes it will be a troop of um, black uh, field workers, and the person that's in charge is some white person. So, uh, you know, you're looking in the middle of Kenya, and you see, you know, an army or uh, a troop of field guys that look local, and then you see uh, Chad, who's out front, uh, who's ready to tell you um, all the facts about uh, how many um, rare animals are, are left and you can, you know, contribute your, uh, $25,000 to go ahead and kill one. So, yeah, but the overwhelming majority of poaching is done by people who would be classified as black. We will leave it there. Uh, I think that point gets amplified frequently. That's another way that they will shift the blame away from individuals classified as white. Uh, they'll make sure, oh yeah, the Negros, they're out poaching. I think when they had the report, uh, we had the one about the white rhino uh, a few weeks back that was on the continent as well, uh, that it's, oh yeah, the black people, that's what they do. They go out, kill. That's why we have to protect poor, helpless, white pandas and giraffes and Snowflake, remember that? They made that movie. I think it came out last year about the albino uh, gorilla. I forgot what it's called, but that was based on uh, Snowflake, I believe, real life albino gorilla uh, that they pampered. I think they even killed all of her black relatives uh, to get the Snowflake, the albino mutant gorilla. Anywho, uh, we will be back. Uh, Workplace Racism, Sundown Towns. You can just check the front page for other broadcasts uh, up and coming in the month of June. Again, uh, next, a week from tomorrow, if you are interested in the Cal's 10-year anniversary counter-racist yoga retreat, California version. Labor Day weekend, August 29 through September 1. Drop an email until justice at gmail.com. Much obliged. Did we miss anybody? Anybody have a hand up that we missed totally?
was hoping didn't have any folks that uh, I completely forgot about. Uh, you had a hand up. Uh, again, thanks everyone for participating. I hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. Drop an email if you have suggestions, gripes, can't find something in the archives, uh, or other suggestions to offer until justice at gmail.com. Share the broadcast if you think it is constructive, uh, would benefit other victims of racism, non white people. With that, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. I think we heard that a few times this evening. Definitely apply that. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, driver or passenger. Let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. Staying off the cell phone would be a great addition to that counter racist plan. Anything that we can do to minimize problems, contact with racists. That being said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time. We are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my condition. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.